0: Hello, movie friends. Welcome to the first ever Raiders of the Lost podcast live show, which was recorded in Los Angeles at the Hayworth Theater in front of a live audience. Come on. Who's not surprised? It took me, I, I came up with that opening like a week ago. Also, like, I woke up in the morning. Great like, job on that. Thank you. Appreciate it. I have a genius idea, Anthony. Let me run it by you. And then I put it together. It's the peak of the show, honestly. <laughs> I don't think we can top that. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you don't like the rest of the show, it's fine. You can leave. But. but we're very excited to be here. A lot of people came out from out of state, a lot of people drove out here. So we appreciate you. We also have 200 people watching right now on live stream. Yeah, and people flew here. The boys flew from all, all the over the boys. country. Got the boys out here. I can't believe more than 10 people showed up to this besides mom and dad, which wherever they are, make sure they're separated. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. They're fine in public. They're fine in public. But if you're, in case you don't know, we're performing live, but we're broadcasting around the world globally. 200 people tuning in around the world right now. We're chatting with them online hey as everyone. well. So we hey can Liv. see hey whatever everybody tuning in. So we're going to do a good job and engage with everybody in the audience as well as on stage. Oh, yeah. And we just hope we put on a good show. We can't thank you enough. For we also everyone. want to say hi to our grandmother. Oh, yeah. Hi, hey, Grandma. Hey Clara. Clara's watching. 94 years old. Oh, my, said she's watching on a computer. Incredible. Love you. How about we talk about why the show here. started? Why, why we're here? If you told me three years ago that we'd be on stage performing a podcast in front of people, I'd be like, what are you talking about, man? You're high. It's all because of 2020, honestly. It was the silver lining of 2020 and the lockdown of us starting the podcast and. At first, it was just you had like a broken table and we had curtains behind us and no set. Bedroom curtains. Bedroom that was curtains. the backdrop. Now look at us. <laughs> it's pretty nice. I it's know. pretty nice. Well, it was like one of those things that like you talk with your buds, like, hey, we should start that project someday and you never do it. You never get to it. Well, oh, we tried it, it out. We tried it. We did a test and I don't know what happened to that audio. I it's burned gone. it. You burned it. <laughs> it's on fire. It's gone forever. And then like we had the opportunity with lockdown, Anthony lost all of his freelance work. I was broke. Sorry pal. No, you're, I was getting, getting the getting government paid money. by the government, dude. Th- thanks, Gavin <laughs> Newsom. They were they were paying your bills. But he had the time to edit the show and we came up with a great like I plan. did everything. TikTok <laughs> is the reason why we got a following, I'm sure who here discovered us from TikTok? Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Thanks, China. That's awesome. <laughs> So cool. I thought TikTok was just dancing videos until you... I tried to tell you because I was trying to make it in the sketch comedy game. It didn't go so well. You're a funny guy. uh, Thanks. I appreciate it. I tried, But it was not going well. I was not making... It was not financially viable. I thought you were... I'm just going to stop doing that. Let's talk about movies because we have a deep passion for film. And everyone's here because of that passion to film. And movies have always been an important part of our lives. We grew up in a sports town in Boston. It's like obviously Tom Brady and Red Sox and Bruins. The Bruins kid. Let's go. And the Seas guy... But we always went to the f- movies. We always rented films at Blockbuster. Our brothers showed us a lot of adult movies, like Radar right movies. We well, Radar, right not adult, adult movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> he well, n- I mean, he's going ste- to Blockbuster with the black curtain. He's going in that side room. <laughs> <laughs> I would steal the- those from Jamie's room for sure when I was a kid, but he doesn't know about that. But they would show us movies that were like 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 Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. things. Chucky, like- Child's yeah, Play. I had yeah. nightmares of Chucky since I was four. Thanks, Jamie and Dennis and Ryan. But I just remember films always being a special part of my life and just being transformed when I went to the films and it was just always an event. Like, remember when going to the movies was like, a thing. There was a sense of urgency. Like you had to get there to get a good seat. You had you to, had get to there check early. the newspaper for the Times that check day or call times. the theater. Are the tickets sold out. We can't go online. We can't select our seat anymore. We can't have the popcorn waiting for us when we get there. Just like, I want my seat right there. I don't want anyone next to me. But now it's, it's just different now than what it used to be, you know? Yeah, I miss that. I miss looking in the newspaper and I miss like you, you're going to the theater and it's an exciting thing to do. Oh, but you know, it still yeah. is. It still is. But. It's still exciting, but yeah. it's less of an event. I think because of social media and technology, but it's because still fun. So, because of streaming, it's kind of eliminated like that event of like always going to the movies to see a movie, unless it was on airing on TV or or, or hey, you I had might, a rental. I'm gonna turn my chair so I can see you better. Yeah, I hope you can see me. I'm gonna hurt my neck. But now there's so many things to watch on streaming. It kind of eliminates that like event type thing of going to the theaters every time. You know what I miss? Like the Tell real me. midnight screenings. Like you show up at like 11, you camp out in a tent. You beat everyone there because you want to get a good seat to see the Dark Knight at midnight at twelve oh one. They don't do that anymore. They do the Wednesday screening, the Thursday screening. Starts it's at it's 3 less PM. exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that because that was always a fun thing. And like, like Chris Nolan changed that when he started doing the midnight screenings. That like it started with Dark Knight, yeah, would sell right? Sell like ten million, make ten million dollars at midnight screening, which who is saw insane. Dark Knight at midnight? Same here. We saw the dorkiest thing. We went to a three a three showing for Dark Knight Rises. We saw Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises at midnight. It played at midnight. It was insane. It smelled like a locker room by the other night. That theater was, yeah, it was disgusting. It was so bad. A bunch of sweaty dudes with towels <laughs> on their shoulders. Like, it was a mess. <laughs> but goddammit, it was epic. <laughs> but I missed that. But for film with us, I mean, we grew up, a lot of you know we have a big family. We have four older brothers, and I think movies are a great babysitter for sure. Mom and Dad, I don't know how you raised us, Mom and Dad. Mom, you're an angel. You're a saint. We need to build a statue of you somewhere. Get your own holiday, not Mother's Day, just Janice Day. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably talk to the government about that. We we can probably figure out something. <laughs> we she can make deserves it, it But I mean, it starts like even Mom's father, our grandfather, He he loved movies. He would always... Record on his VCR recorder, like movies on TV. On tape. So like he had a closet full of VHSs of all these movies, and you go over and sleep over. And he'd show you Shogun Assassins, which was it's a five-hour. Probably movie. shouldn't have watched that. But when we watched Kill Bill two and they watched Shogun Assassin in bed, I was like, I used to do that. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Get ice cream, but even the commercials played. So I think like I, I I feel like we got that gene of loving film from him as well as you know going to the movies, the cliche. You know, divorced parents, the the boys go to the movies with dad on the weekends, <laughs> mom's making all the sandwiches during the week. <laughs> and uh, bowling and movies. Bowling and the movies. But, but I always loved going to the films. To the films. To the films. But for me, I was a, we were always big movie lovers, but it wasn't until I saw this film when I was like 17, and I didn't know much about it. I just liked the trailer. i never seen anything by that filmmaker before. I recognized the actor's name from something but I was just drawn to the trailer and the poster. And it was probably the first movie I saw by myself, and that's There Will Be Blood. And when, that, when I saw that film, within five minutes, I was just honestly transformed as a cinema gober. It made me look at films in a different way. And that movie in particular, when I watched that, after I watched it, I was like, that's what I want to do with my life. And I want to pursue this, this, this thing and try and find my way into that industry. And so There Will Be Blood was like the main influence for me ever getting into film in a serious way other than being like a casual moviegoer. I remember you were like writing screenplays when we were like 17, 18 I had like school. a typewriter as a 16-year-old. I was year like <laughs> getting into guitar. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to major in. I'm playing a lot of guitar. I'm playing electric, electric guitar. You're yeah. watching There Will Be Blood in your film dungeon basement. <laughs> Taxi driver. Like across the <laughs> All, other well room. Well, then I had the Netflix 3D DVDs out at a time the thing. Disc the disc mail. The mail to you, Yeah. yeah. I would just burn through them. Explain Netflix mailing in case everyone forgot. Yeah, well, before before streaming, Netflix was just all by the mail. So you would order a DVD online, then they would ship it to you in like a little paper envelope, and you'd watch it and return it in the mailbox, and you'd leave it out, and then the mail person would just grab it and send it back in for you. But you could do up to three DVDs at a time, and I did. And I, I watched like. Probably a th- thousand movies in a couple of years just I can from attest that. to that. <laughs> he definitely did. <laughs> I had very few friends. He had uh, fellows on loop for a week, I remember. I was a Taxi Driver, too. I missed that. Well, what's crazy about Netflix is Blockbuster, I don't know if anyone knows, could a... Uh, Bought Netflix for fifty million dollars, they offered to the Blockbuster to buy it, and now obviously Blockbuster. And then they made a Blockbuster TV show and canceled it. I think they <laughs> did that on purpose, probably. We know this is gonna fail. F it. <laughs> like why not? But I, I miss that. I miss going to Blockbuster. If everyone Who misses is, Blockbuster? Is, is anyone here too young that they don't remember? I loved going to Blockbusters. Friday night is a rainy weekend. No baseball games, no football games, no basketball. The the boys are going to Blockbuster, all six of us, pick out three movies. Two rated R that the twins are watching with the older brothers that mom and dad didn't know about. But, I, but I what's that different? feeling? Yeah, Remember Blockbuster? Blocking down the rows. Yeah, because you would... DVDs you, behind the case? You select them now on, on a streaming app, but it's like, when you go to Blockbuster, that was the movie you were stuck with for three days. So you had to... It was important to make the right choice. And you're just you're like... You're stuck with it. You're stuck with <laughs> it. you're skipping, so you, you're calling Nancy on Blockbuster. The <laughs> late <laughs> fees... But it was it was a special thing because when you chose the right movie, you put so much thought into it. You're like, this is my movie for the for the weekend. But then you discover weird things when you Blockbuster, too. Oh yeah, but I th- miss that feeling. Now yeah. we're just like it's kind of the same thing, except digital now. When you're on Netflix, yeah, but There's if you so don't like a choices. movie, you can just move on. Yeah, you you got to go. You're like you want to eat that popcorn that you got in line, so you're gonna pick something. I miss when Netflix would, when a uh, blockbuster would have new releases and they'd have like a whole shelf of like Spider Man Two. You'd be like, Spider Man Two is at Blockbuster. Get there ASAP. <laughs> we need to get one. <laughs> i miss it man i I would love to also talk about you know why film is important obviously pretty much everyone here connects with film in a different way or or you're passionate about it especially the people who traveled so far to come here we appreciate you so much making the journey here but to us film's always been just an ultimate form of communication it's you know the 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 greatest form of creativity and art in humanity i think you know storytelling's been passed down for since the start of civilization even before then and i think where we're at with film, we're so lucky to experience movies and to go to the theater and have that entire event-like experience, even though it's changed a little bit. But even the luxury of being home and watching movies at home 24-7, whenever you want, we're so fortunate. I try to always remain grateful about that 24-7. Yeah, it really is just a contemporary art form, because we actually went to the Academy Museum yesterday, and they had a great exhibit showcasing the earliest versions of film in like, the Lumiere Brothers they would just they built the first camera and they would just film mundane things like a train coming in to the station or people exiting a building and that was the most mind-blowing thing people had ever seen and it would be it would be like a traveling show they would take from circuses to circuses traveling around the world showing these little minute-long clips of just the most trivial things but back then nobody had ever ever seen anything like that before and that was just 120 years ago now we have such an influx of that art form and it's an amazing medium i think that storytelling in in filmmaking is the greatest art that humans have ever created because it, it can connect you to someone from around the world just from their story. You can relate to someone from some other foreign country who has nothing to do with you, but you watch a film, you're basically watching like a mo- a, a capture of their life and you can connect them with, with them on a deep emotional and human level. But then you can also watch like a big blockbuster and be entertained and have a great time for two hours and have fun with your friends or, or your loved ones. So it's an Im- incredible art form and something that I'm just, I feel very grateful that I live in a time in this world where we can just watch films and um, and just communicate through them as well. We're so lucky. It's like an artifact of history too. There's so many movies that show you what life was like in a certain era. You can read history books, you can read novels that people write that went through things, but I think visually watching something like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan, 12 Years a Slave, these movies really connect us to the past and how far humanity has come. In civil- John Wick as well. <laughs> yeah, I think he- I'm back. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> Yeah, the I'm trying to do the John Wick hair right now. <laughs> you got the Chalamet hair. The Chalamet? No, yeah. I don't know about that. Who's that's, got, does he have the Chalamet hair? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm blushing now. <laughs> but it's like a time machine film, and that's why I love it so much. You really can understand what the past is like or what events were like, or, or put yourself in someone's shoes really accurately to put yourself in that position and really understand the world and where we're at right now, whether it's a movie that takes place in the 12th century or the 1800s or, or present day. Yeah, absolutely. And it's turned into our own thing. Like we made a film when we were 20. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, and we, It was a feature film. It's an hour, long, hour and a half long and it's online, but I, 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 I privated it. Anywhere, no. it. But I it was I deleted that off. But we, well, we just couldn't help but like want to tell our own story, and it's something we've always been drawn to. And we just had the amazing experience of making our own short film this past month, which, which went so well, and we're very proud of it. It was called Midnight Ruin, and uh, we actually showed it to a couple of our our friends yesterday, a little private screening, and it, it was just like vindicated, like my love for film for filmmaking. And you know, the podcast has been an amazing thing that happened to in our lives to be able to. Do this full time as our jobs, and it's allowing us to pursue actually making the creative endeavor of making films, which is so important to us. Yeah, the goal wasn't to make a f- podcast when we were like 15, like we should make a podcast. That wasn't, someday. Even, a we, thing. That wasn't even a thing at all. And the goal has always been. A trajectory in a career towards making movies for a living—that's the dream, that's the passion, that's the goal. And whatever avenue gets us there, gets us there. And the the podcast was so incredible because you could say, like, s- somewhat creatively, sort of in a slump, and you just get lost in kind of like your mid twenties. I felt, for me personally, not 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 you. It was this emo face. Yeah, <laughs> too much good Charlotte playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the podcast just reinvigorated my passion for film, and now I just watch movies. I've always looked at it through an analytical lens, especially on the 47th time I watch a movie, which happens pretty regularly. But now it's just more... Looking at it from the perspective of the filmmakers, which I think is really fascinating to just see what they're trying to make from behind the scenes always, but always trying to enjoy it as a viewer the first time, but second, third, viewings always critiquing or analyzing or trying to figure out how they do stuff to try to influence if I want to do something like that in the future. Yeah, and I think everyone has a story to tell. Everyone can be a filmmaker. Everyone can be a storyteller or a writer because everybody's life is valid. Everyone has a complex, you know, thing going on. So everyone can tell a story on their own. Everyone here could tell, um, make a movie for sure. But I think we grew up, I'm going to say, I think we grew up in the golden age of like studio blockbuster films, and I feel really lucky because we went to the movies so much, but I mean, blockbusters nowadays, oftentimes, they they feel kind of redundant, and they're kind of becoming a little corporatized, but... When we grew up, it was like Pirates of the Caribbean, Harry Potter, Gladiator, Lord, Lord of the Rings. We grew up with Lord of the Rings. How lucky isn't were that, we? Isn't that fucking? And it lit? was not tainted. It was yeah. not tainted. Kill Bills. I mean, the Jason Bourne movies. They are some of the best action movies, except for the fourth one, obviously. But they're just all perfect movies. The Spider Man's Gladiator. I mean, we we went to the movies. We went to the cinema and saw Gladiator in person. Like these, these are movies that like. I still like feel like I I'm so I feel so grateful that I grew up watching like Lord of the Rings. I have in no theaters. idea what Lord of the Rings was, but I, th- I remember we were at the movies with Dad, seeing another movie. But then remember they had the big cut cardboard cutouts, and I was like, "What are these?" Hobbit things or whatever. <laughs> I didn't know what a Hobbit was, but I was like, what "They're are these people, dudes? Jim." They're what not are these things? dudes right here. In this tall <laughs> canceled. <laughs> Ten minutes in, he's already done. <laughs> All right, last man, get out of here, <laughs> buddy. This is why we edit the podcast. <laughs> this is our first live show ever. <laughs> that's why <laughs> I said, "Hot." Yeah, anyways. But I was curious, and then we saw it, and I was just blown away. And it's one of those franchises that I've always adored, and the most watched films of my life, probably, or Lord of the Rings. But that's something that film, going to the theater, and seeing that in person it just changed my trajectory of my love for film and i wouldn't maybe have that passion for lord of the rings if i didn't or these franchises if we didn't see them in theaters that's why i think streaming is so many pros and cons but the con of not experiencing it as an event yeah, it kind of limits the love that you can feel for a project. But I, I do, I, I miss the creativity in the, in the difference of franchises, how they all were just like their own thing. I mean, you, there's a Sherlock Holmes franchise, you know, I mean, National Treasure, I Am Legend. These are great big movies. Spielberg had some great hits, Minority Report, uh, War yeah, of the a Worlds, couple hits. <laughs> couple hits in the 2000s. And then, but then I feel like the early superhero films of the 2000s, the Batman movies with Nolan and then Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies and the, some of the early X-Men films, I still, think, I still hold them in such a high regard in terms of the comic book genre. And I feel like we grew up in like a great time for the early days of big superhero comic book films. The creativity of like authenticity of there what they get to hear. There it is. Inside joke of the show. And also of, of what the, the creators wanted to put their vision to versus what comic book movies have kind of turned into the last couple of years. But like when you see movies like Blade and those early X-Men and Spider-Man and Batman, those are just on a different level than today. And then Pixar was really coming into its own with Finding Nemo, with Up, with Ratatouille, which is my favorite, Monsters, Inc. You I mean, kind of remind me of Remy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a great cook. I'm a great cook with I a rat on your head. I don't yeah. cook French food at all though, so don't ask me to make ratatouille. <laughs> but I just feel lucky that we grew up in an age because now nowadays films are definitely corporatized, you know, there's a few companies own everything. AT&T and Disney basically owns everything nowadays. But back then, it was the beginning days of that, you know, these the studios were, "Oh, we can make 100 million dollars, we can make 300 million dollars with this property." So the 2000s really were the leading the course towards the corporate t- corporatization of film nowadays. But we also grew up in the nineties, which I think was probably one of the strongest decades of film with its creativity. Every film was its own thing and there was never anything repetitive. There were no legacy sequels. There were no origin stories. There were no reboots. <laughs> I'm sure there's an origin story in there somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere. But I think that the corporatization in the streaming days of of that we're in now, they're kind of eliminating some of the the artistic integrity of filmmaking And artistic films are still getting made, obviously, but I think they're getting seen less and less than ever before. A lot of the great independent films that came out this year made very low box office compared to everything else. And obviously these never were big box office hits, but you want those movies to make about 20, 25 million. The the really big standout success from 2022 was obviously Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was a wonderful film and I love. And I think it was one of the highlights of 2022 a film like that just blowing up. And it was a limited release And I think, the first week. It was like $5 million, but it just kept chugging along, chugging along. That word of mouth still has a lot of pull with audiences. And I think that film showed that people want something new. People want something fresh and exciting. An original story, an original idea, um, p- playing around with a different culture. I mean, I think it's important for a film like that to really excel nowadays. Word of mouth is really important for marketing. It seems like because of the corporatization of cinema and films and Disney-owning, Every studio, every the, every, every, every time you go to the War. movies, it's probably Disney owned. It's pretty close because they bought 20th Century Fox Studios for a, what 127 million dollars or something like that a few years like ago. A whole billion. So now they have 20 <laughs> or billion. Did I say million. Yeah. 127 billion. They got billion. on the cheap. Cheap. They got yeah. on the cheap. <laughs> well, every, almost every time you go to the movies, ha- there's a good chance it's going to be a Disney film, even if it says. 20th century studios now. Well, Avatar now. is a Disney film, yeah. Avatar is a Disney yeah. film now, but I think A24 is such an important studio yeah. to keep making great independent films without the corporate overlords looking over their scripts and everything and their productions, and obviously they've been offered to be purchased Apple. from Apple for yeah. like a billion dollars. I'm sure like if you started that company, like a billion dollars sounds really cool. Like a million dollars sounds cool, but a billion dollars sounds really Social network reference. <laughs> let me finish the reference. <laughs> never let me finish the quotes. <laughs> We all know you're smart and you know movies, guy. All right, we get it. You know the quote. <laughs> Congratulations! I get so excited. I know you do. You can't hold it in. Whenever we do trivia on the show, he's like answers immediately. I'm like, what about everyone listening? <laughs> Sorry, I'm selfish. They want to guess. They're. Pro- I guarantee everyone who listens to trivia on Anthony answers like, oh man, I wanted a minute to. Here think we go. Of that. <laughs> you, get, you gotta pause. You gotta pause the episode before Anthony answers. <laughs> 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 sorry guys <laughs> no but I think that studios like A24 is so important bringing us stories like everything at Once and they're an incredible catalog and, and even the, though they yeah. don't always make hits and bangers they've maybe what like five movies over 30 million dollars box office it's still important What's, what makes A24 special and you can see that they have like a million followers on Instagram now like they're a brand now and it's because they clearly give filmmakers complete com- creative control over their projects which is so rare for a studio and I think that A24 is really leading the way in terms of really incredible filmmaking of the, the contemporary times and it's something like when you see an a24 film you know it's going to be different you know it's going to be special even if it's not quite up to par with everything else they make but you know it's going to be something that you're not going to see from the other studios i think yeah. it's, they're super important right now they make some weird movies too though which i, love I like but ones. also hate yeah. like that movie tusk disturbing <laughs> does anyone know what i'm talking about tusk it's about a, a movie but if you've never seen it's about a guy who gets turned into a walrus Literally. It's gross. Don't watch it. I'll never watch it again. Just thinking about it makes me queasy. Amanda forced us to watch it. Yeah, Because <laughs> we, we have our Patreon and we have a Godfather tier where if you're in that section and you support us that much, where we're so grateful for the patrons, I'm sure a lot of you are listening and plenty in the audience. At that tier, you get to pick an episode that we review just for you. And she picked Tusk and we had to watch Tusk and review it, which I did not enjoy. I did not enjoy that at all. It's gross. Poor, poor guy. I know. Life's hard. <laughs> Life is hard. You have to watch Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> but also, we had another great thing in 2022 with Top Gun Maverick, and obviously, we did that intro, which was a lot of fun. But I think what Top Gun Maverick did was it showed that a blockbuster studio film, the, the biggest film of the year, doesn't have to follow the traits of everything else nowadays, and it can just be pure escapism, and there's a lot of old-school filmmaking, like practicality, very little CGI, and, and just like the old-school, like classic hero story, and I think that I had so much fun watching that film. I like Top Gun the first film, but I never like him like a Top Gun guy. Uh, we, y'all I'm know we love top Tom gun. Cruise. But I was like, Top Gun's like an 80s cheesy movie. doesn't it hasn't age aged so well. well. When he walks in the woman's bathroom, yeah. I'm like, I'm not watching this part. Like, but, no way. but when I watched Maverick, I was like, this absolutely floored me. And even Tom Cruise haters, like, they can't, de- they can't help. Be like, okay, that's a pretty good movie. Can't this deny it. Dawson, deny I'm looking it. at you. <laughs> <laughs> you love Tom Cruise. You know it. <laughs> he couldn't make it. I know he was in the credits, everybody. I'm sorry. It's tough to get him to hear, yeah. you know. And it, took, it cost a lot of money just to get uh, Nicole Kidman into voice over the <laughs> intro. And then also uh, horror had a great year in 2022 and it's on, it's on such a high rise. Like I posted a a photo of the upcoming horror films of 2023 it's like like 40 really good movies that look like they're coming out in 2023 it's the genre is at its peak right now i think and obviously some of the classic horror films are the best all time like rosemary's babies the exorcist jaws obviously the shining and stuff like that but right now we're like in an amazing time for any horror fan that you can in april march in june and later in the fall there's going to be so many horror films to watch from really great filmmakers and what I love about horror films, there obviously are a few sequels, but oftentimes they're just original ideas. Like we just watched Megan uh, the other week and it wasn't the best Megan. movie. In me- <laughs> Megan. It wasn't the best movie in the world, but it was different. It was original. You know, it's an original story. And I, I like that horror because they're often made in such a low budget. They can be creative. They can just be like out there, like what the fuck, whatever. Just try something Watch different. Watch the F-bombs. Sorry, Kids watching. <laughs> Sorry. Gr- grandma's watching. <laughs> Sorry, Grandma. It was him, not me. Make sure you remember that on my birthday. <laughs> Our birthday. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I see where your head's at. <laughs> He's cutting me out already. <laughs> but as a horror fan, I'm really excited for the next th- for the next year of films. Yeah, I mean, I love the the studios right now working. A24, obviously, again, great horror films in Blumhouse as well. Just bringing back what I think is so important is the psychological horror, which we lost kind of in the 90s when we had a lot of slasher, coming, slasher movies coming back. movies. in the 2000s with the torture porn, yeah, the, porn to, movies. Yeah, yeah. The, the gore was yeah. crazy in the 2000s, which I understand, and I like some of it. To, sometimes it's a bit much, but I understand it's necessary for the genre. Even movies like Terrifier, Terrifier 2, I get why it has to be in the genre. I will watch them someday, loaded, so I can sit through it. But... I think it's important for the genre, but to bring back the psychological horror from the great films like Rosemary's Baby and The Shining, films like Get Out recently, and, and even just fun movies like Ready or Not, where it's just a crazy idea, it's so important to get Happy those Death out. Happy Death Day. Yeah, Happy yeah. Death Day, but horror, the genre, is the strongest it's been easily since the 70s. It might even surpass the 70s pretty soon. And there was someone like Ari Oster, I can't wait for Bo is Afraid, because his first, his last two films have been fantastic with Hereditary Midsummer, and but he's just always trying something different in... Some filmmakers, they kind of have the same style, same kind of way of approaching storytelling, but he's someone special where it's like every movie is so different. In the in the of Afraid trailer with Joaquin Phoenix, I was like, this is insane. I can't wait to watch this. And that gets me really excited that so, so many young filmmakers nowadays are getting budgets to really tell stories that we've never seen before. My favorite directors are probably people that are so effective at creating their own tone in a movie which is kind of hard to describe sometimes, but it's like when you're watching their movie, you know it's been directed by them. You feel like you're in a different atmosphere or, or environment. Like Stanley Kubrick was always so effective at creating his own tone. Like Yorgos Lanthimos is somebody, I think, contemporary that kind of is in that genre as well. It's like excellent at creating tone. You know you're watching a Chris Nolan movie. You know you're watching a Jordan Peele movie. But I think also Ari Oster is one of those filmmakers that, really captures a tone so effectively to kind of transport you into his his own world, his own bubble, whoever the filmmaker is. is it? There's really only a couple handfuls I think that can do that, but those are some of my favorites. Yeah, auteurism. Yeah, like they're auteurs. You, you, when you're watching a movie by them, you know it's that filmmaker. Tarantino's like, and also like, it depends on the cameras. They use the lenses. They use the kind of film stock if they're shooting on film, but also the digital camera if they're using a certain kind of digital camera. But th- those those are really great storytellers when you're watching, like Wes Anderson is definitely one where oh, 100% watching, you watch percent. No, know it's a Wes Anderson you know it's Anderson movie going into it and when you're watching, Owen Wilson's it. in it. Wow, oh, wow, <laughs> wow! <laughs> <laughs> but we have a lot of great movies coming out next year. I mean, uh, Wes Anderson has a movie coming out with Asteroid City. He, he just cast everybody in Hollywood for yeah. that. <laughs> just everyone, <laughs> more Bring me, everyone, more <laughs> Nolan with Oppenheimer as I, well. I think we all know it, that we're excited. The most excited for Oppenheimer because we talk about it pretty much every episode. We talk about Nolan all the time. Yeah, but with, with Christopher Nolan, he's. I think he's still like the only filmmaker of his day that no matter what the movie is his fans are going to turn out and the, the he, like, he made a World War II movie that made almost 500 million dollars and like he can get butts in seats better than anyone can not even Spielberg can do that anymore and there's something special about Chris Nolan and I have a high hopes for Oppenheimer I just read a Jordan Peele um, transcript from a podcast he was on saying that it's his most anticipated movie of next year. Excellent taste in film, Jordan yeah, Field. Yeah, he's a smart guy. <laughs> but with Nolan, you know you're getting something different on the large scale, which nobody else really does For the because he's making a $250 million movie uh, with the best artist and craftsmanship possible and shooting in the highest quality format of film that you can possibly do with the IMAX film. And I think his fans understand, like, you know what? Even if it, you can't hear the sound perfectly, Jacob, you got to be in IMAX, all right? Go to IMAX, that's why. He doesn't care about you if you're watching somewhere else. you got to go to IMAX. <laughs> Sometimes it's, this movie's allowed. Yeah. Jacob it's still, it. it's, Jacob's our sound engineer for the show, so yeah, everyone give him a round of applause. applause. He's the reason why we sound we good. We flew him out from Atlanta. Welcome, bud. We're so happy you're here. He makes it sound like buttery and smooth. Yeah, so smooth. I mean, he deepens your nasally voice. My nasally voice. Some people say it sound like a if I get it. I get it now. <laughs> but, Nolan, I think with Oppenheimer... If this turns out to be as special as it looks, just from the trailer, I think he's going to be considered an all timer with that film. He's already an all timer because this will be his tenth film, but he's he's made you know a, a few studio films, but like now that would be his like fourth like creatively original film, and I think that will put him on the spectrum of like talking about Nolan in the same conversation as someone like uh, Stanley Kubrick. Well, what I think is so special about Nolan, even though he's made three Batman movies and other other big projects, I think so many the the original (laughs) having an original IP make almost a billion dollars with films like Inception Interstellar made a ton of money even though it was written by his brother but still the original IP in a world of IP obsession from studios where all they want to do is buy an IP up and make 17 origin stories out of it make a TV series on their streaming platforms reboot legacy characters coming back at the end of the film for the same old jokes and kind of just (laughs) the rise the origin movies I think in a world full of obsessiveness over IPs to try to get as much money out of a out of an old title property, or property yeah. as much as possible from these studios. Someone like Chris Nolan, he doesn't care, he doesn't need an IP. Obviously he did the IP with Batman, but to make original projects, original ideas that make as much money as a Marvel movie is absolutely insane. It shows how much power he has as a filmmaker. and I think he's still one of he's one of my favorite all the time for sure. He's the, I think he's he has the most power than anyone because he has complete creative control over his projects. No, and very few filmmakers get that. He wants $300 million and do whatever the hell he wants, and he's going to blow up a nuclear bomb, and no one's going to say anything about it. (laughs) He didn't really blow up a nuclear bomb. He didn't do it. He didn't really do it. I don't think. I don't know. Well, my guess is that he created a bunch of different sized explosions to try and emulate what exactly that explosion did look like in shooting on miniatures, shooting on small sets, and even larger scale miniatures to capture the aesthetic of it, but not actually using a nuclear yeah, fusion. Yeah, my guess is he made, like, a miniature giant city to maybe and then use the types of practical effects to make it seem like the mushroom cloud and everything like that. Oh, yeah, all, yeah. all real. He didn't really do it. That's a war crime. <laughs> He'd be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> He'd, He'd do it just... He would do it. <laughs> I'll just do it somewhere safe, like, in the <laughs> desert. It's no big deal. Blow up a nu- blow up a nuke. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have some really great uh, new franchises. I think John Wick is a really great new franchise that's creative, it's original... And I watched that fourth trailer for John Wick 4. So I've been doing this thing. I've been trying to watch trailers in the theaters first rather than online. and it Because I remember when I was a kid, and you, you could only watch the trailers in, in the cinema. And it was like a special thing. Like, whoa, what is that movie? And so now the experience. Yeah. yeah. Like I did the same thing with Evil Dead Rise. I waited until we were, I was in the theater to watch that trailer. And I hadn't seen the John Wick trailer for like two weeks. And then I, we, I went to see a film. And then that John Wick trailer played, and you were with me, and we were like, holy fuck, that looks insane. (laughs) Grandma, sorry, that's him again. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But I, I I really enjoy like that f- that franchise looks like, looks like it's getting uh, bigger, more artistic, more creative, more origin stories. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really fantastic, and that's a really great new franchise that I think has a lot of legs. We're obviously going to see John Wick fifteen in about a couple of decades. But I hope Keanu's still doing it. I don't want him to re-release. <laughs> I want old man with an IV on the on the pole walking around shooting people. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm still here. <laughs> And then the the new Spider-Man animated franchise uh, across the universe looks fantastic. And I think they did a great job with the first film. The new one looks very creative. The animation looks like they're really pushing the boundaries of what you can do with an animated film. It really sets it apart from everything else you're seeing in that genre of animated films. And that's a special franchise that I think has a bright future. Creed franchise is going to be fantastic. The third film... That trailer looks insane, and I can't wait for that movie. It looks like the best of the of the trilogy for yeah. sure. Because I like the first one a lot, but for me, there's just a, the green screen's kind of noticeable for me, and it kind of takes me out when we're in the boxing. But it looks like Michael B. Jordan, who's the star and also directing the yeah. new Creed movie. It's he's it looks like a lot of practical uh, crowd, which looks really incredible. The trailer is electric, and I think casting Jonathan Majors was a great idea. He's fantastic. He's so hot right now. <laughs> Hansel's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> but Evil De- Evil Dead has a lot of legs with this new trailer then Wonka looks like it might be a, a franchise oh, yeah, Timmy come on guy <laughs> so it's Wonka gonna be origins. Wonka Origins <laughs> but it looks like they want to make a franchise out of it what's funny is we had like what was it 20 something weeks in a row on our weekly chat every Sunday we talk about all the news that I mean uh, the movie news episode all the news of the week and we always have a joke that started with origin stories and we had like 30 last year that are now the movies are gonna come out this year so it's gonna be fun to see all these origin stories lots of origins <laughs> and then also we got George Miller coming back with Mad Max and Mad Max Fury Road I think is one of the the great action movies of our time, I saw that film, yeah. Masterpiece. It it absolutely blew me away. I'd never seen anything like it before. And the filmmaking practicality, because we're so inundated with CGI to see actual stunt work on a huge scale like that, to not just be like, oh, we're just going to do a couple things in front of the camera, then CGI the rest in the background. Like, no, we're actually going to do everything and just CGI maybe a couple of things. And that most of the CGI in Mad Max Fury Road is they were just CGIing mountains in the backgrounds to make it look like a different kind of looking desert from where they actually shot. That was like the heavy use of CGI in that film. And I love that. That's like, I mean, the namesake of the show, Indiana Jones, the practical stunt work in that film, the huge sets, the epicness of it. It's, you can tell that it's not fake. You can tell that people are actually doing this. And it really makes a difference. And so I can't wait for Mad Max The Wasteland, which is going to be Furiosa Origins. Furiosa but, Origins, yeah. But With it, Anya Taylor-Joy, yeah, right? Yeah, Anya Taylor-Joy and then Chris Hemsworth is going to be playing the villain. So I'm very curious to, be, to see that film. I'm because ex- Mad Max Fury Road, I think, was 2014, so it's been quite a while. Yeah, you're right. So George Miller, I'm sure, has been cooking up something special. Isn't that long? Well, I l- I love the fact that obviously he made the Mad Max movies with Mel Gibson a long time ago, but he had this crazy vision. It was never really to bring it to fulfillment until now with technology and, and the effects that we can do now with the uh, with filmmaking. And so it's incredible to, st- to h- stick to your guns for four decades and to. Finally, creatively make what you've always been envisioning for decades. Yeah, and all, it's not just like CGI and visual effects, but like back then, like it's just like a practicality of filming. Like now they have all these crazy rigs. You can use cranes, cams, like so many things you can do practically to film a movie. Like we were at the Academy Museum yesterday and we saw they had a Godfather uh, exhibit and they it's showed. Best the, part of the museum. It's, it's incredible. And they had a, on display the actual camera they filmed the movies on. And it's like this big iron, cast iron, super heavy, bulky camera setup. And that's what they were using in the 60s and 70s and 50s. Like, you couldn't do much with that. And so that George Miller was even able to pull off really cool action sequences with these bulky cameras with very limited tools at his disposal. To still do that back then was really special. But now he has complete free reign to really do what he has in his mind and create that on screen, which is special. Also, it, his wife is the editor of the films. And she Mad Max Fury Road is like one of the best edited movies I've ever seen. She got an life. Oscar for that. Yeah, she won the Oscar as well. Yeah. So, and also, he got to put a mask on Tom Hardy, which for some reason, directors love doing. I don't know why. I mean, he's got great eyes, but <laughs> yeah, those Bane lips Dun on Kirk. camera, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of 2023, obviously, Dune. 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 Here it is. Dune reference of the sh- show. Let's go! Who's excited for Dune 2? Come on, Dune Part 2. Very excited. We love that. I can't oh, yeah. wait for that. But also, speaking of practical effects and stunts, Mission Impossible 7. <laughs> Dead Reckoning Part 1. These titles are getting ridiculous. Yeah. Mission sure. Impossible 7, Dead it's Reckoning Part 1. It's a mouthful. Tom Cruise. We'll still be there. Can't wait to do it. Can't wait to see it, obviously. I don't know if anyone's seen the stunt photos with him taking a motorcycle and jumping off a giant ramp. They did a whole behind-the-scenes documentary of it. It's, it's incredible yeah. what this guy does. That's why we love Tom Cruise so much. No matter how crazy he is or people think he is, yeah. he's just a man. He's a legend. He's the biggest movie star in the world. No one will ever be like that guy. So that's why we love him. I have a lot of respect for him. Just He puts his life on the line to entertain people. And nobody really does that anymore. Jackie Chan was doing that in, in the 2000s. and Buster Keaton in the yeah, 1920s, Buster Keaton. 19-teens. But the stunt work is just really fabulous in, that, in those films. And they keep getting bigger and bigger. And... He's going to space next year. So I love that he's really pushing the boundaries of what he can do. <laughs> he's going to freaking space. Yeah, he's going to be the first person, the first civilian to ever do a spacewalk ever in history, and it's going to be for a movie. Yeah, I love Jackie, too, and Tom, and I-, I love talking about them together because their stunt work's so different in the the two best of all time when it comes to stunt work in the modern era for sure combining performance but their yeah. stunt work so different where obviously they're both putting their lives in the line Jackie does it where he's gonna break all of his bones in his body at some point But well the the, bit, the best part of Jackie Chan movies were the blooper reels at the end absolutely That's, you, I love yeah. that and you'd see like fish. what kind of fish is it <laughs> the fish. but you'd see Jackie like putting his body on the line and all of it every shot it doesn't matter how insignificant the shot was he just put he, 110% and Jet Lee was also like we loved we actually watched a lot of Chinese cinema when we were kids like a Jet Li movies Crouching Tiger like remember Jet Li's Fearless and Hero those are awesome yeah amazing incredible stunt work and action sequences martial arts and we like Jet Li and Jackie Chan were like they were like our superheroes in a way because you had Arnold and Stallone in the 90s and Bruce 80s. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. And then... He's just a normal face guy. Yeah, yeah, Superhero. Like, how is this guy the an every action man. star? <laughs> every man. Because he's so goddamn charming. He's a charming guy. He's so cool. That jawline. Yeah. But in the 2000s, it, like, Jackie Chan and Jet Li were our superheroes in a lot of ways. Like, they were the larger-than-life characters. You would go see the Jet Li movie... And he would just beat everyone up and just be the hero at the end of the day. But now, now it's the, now the superheroes have taken over that. But like back then, it was like those were our superheroes in a lot of ways. I think that's why we love John Wick so much because there's so much practical stunt work and that and mm-hmm. those stunt actors and and, and uh, Keanu do so much work and. That's why I love films like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But whenever there's practical stunt work, I absolutely adore it, even especially with Tenet recently with John David Washington doing all those fight choreography. Obviously, he's, I don't know if anyone knows, John David Washington, Denzel's son. He's a former NFL football player running back, so he's super athletic. So I think that's one of the reasons why Nolan Kassim is because he did all that stunt choreography in reverse and forward. So I love practical stunt work. And whenever I see, you just know the difference for sure, especially. Actors putting their life on the line. Obviously, you don't want to do it too often. Really, only a handful of them do it like Tom Cruise right now and Jackie Chan. Because if you're an actor and you want to do a stunt, and let's say you get hurt, you're shutting down production for months. on And you potentially... That happened on Black Panther, Wakanda, Forever. Yeah, Let right? yeah. She got hurt, and they had to shut down production for months. And it, it really affects people. Obviously, the stars, they have enough money, they're fine. But a lot of people working on productions, they depend on that consistent work and moving from production to production. So it's tough to do but when you have someone like Tom Cruise who's jumping out of airplanes for real, I love watching that, man. I it's love insane. it. You know, You know the difference. I love it. There was another great story of 2022, and that was Brendan Fraser's comeback, which, I mean, we were, we're so happy to see. It. Yeah, and it's fantastic to see him being uh, embraced by Hollywood again. And we grew up on his films. And I mean, the first Mummy movie was a childhood favorite of ours. So we wore that deal. Still VHS. a favorite. What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah, yeah favorite. still a favorite. <laughs> it, but it, I think that was probably the my favorite story of 2022 in the film world of Brendan Fraser coming back and everyone showing like, you know, everybody loves this guy. And he's going to have a great renaissance. The next 10 years of his career, I think, are going to be really special. And we saw The Whale. I saw it twice, and it absolutely floored me. I was devastated the first time. I haven't yeah. cried that hard since Manchester by the Sea. Oh we're my talking God, about a film, and, and I weeped for thirty-five minutes during that movie. I don't know if anyone's seen it. I'm sure some of you have. <laughs> <laughs> sure of you have. I haven't cried that hard since Fruitvale Station. Up right now, yeah, Fruitvale Station did it for me, man. But. Fruitvale Station, we saw, and on the way home, well, Anthony was crying. Obviously, the last ten minutes. If anyone's seen it, it's uh, Michael B. Jordan. It was like kind of his big break film. was Ryan Coogler and Ryan Coogler directing together, so it was like their first big movie together and it's a it's a tragic story. Anthony, I was weeping for like five minutes, but then Anthony, the whole car ride home, he was breaking down. I'm like, are you okay, We man? walked through the, the, are you theater, okay? the theater lobby. I had to hide myself. I was <laughs> <laughs> sobbing. It was so embarrassing. But I was that's, like, that's, I can't stop crying. The power of cinema and the power yeah, of film. Exactly. And I feel like you wouldn't feel that completely the same if you're watching at home streaming, and that's why streaming versus theaters will always go to the theaters when you can. And, and You look at statistics, and film rewatch probability is so low when people are watching a movie for the first time on streaming, and even a movie like Prey, which I thought was really cool, you know, it's the seventh Predator movie they've made, and I, I liked it a lot, but the rewatch value on va- value on that's pretty low for me because I didn't experience in theater in theaters. So yeah, last year there were two really good streaming movies: that one and All Quiet on the Western Front. In both times, within a few minutes, we both turned to each other. We were like, "Oh, we wish we were in a theater right yeah. now," because it kind of took away the like the magnetism of the film, especially the filmmaking of All Quiet on the Western Front, which was really magnificent and huge, and incredible, and I felt like I was missing the experience watching it on my couch, and I, I prefer, like, hopefully Netflix and Amazon has, has actually made a commitment to doing theatrical releases for at least a couple of weeks before they release it on their app. Hopefully, more of these streaming services can be like, you know what, let's do a theatrical release. They can release it at the same time, but for me, I, I feel like I'm missing something when I'm watching it at home. I think the TV, the small screen, it's, for TV shows it's perfectly fine but I felt like I was missing so much watching it just on I mean we have a 52 inch TV it was, it's nothing compared it's nice. to it's 55 actually <laughs> it's nothing compared to a, a huge theater because I mean, I mean the, the special experience of like sitting with a bunch of strangers in a dark room watching something and experiencing it live uh, it's just something special about that and I, I mean I like you man but <laughs> <laughs> I like to watch Thanks, it with a crowd Appreciate too it. I like a crowd around me you're an okay guy you don't like a crowd around you. You want to be empty in a the theater by yourself. As soon as so, if someone fidgets in their chair, you're like, Can you please stop moving, sir? Let's be honest, Anthony. Let's be honest. Come on. You no. want the empty theater to yourself or they you, can you want They can move all they want. It's you just want noise. it packed with mannequins, no one moving. Well, I swear to God, last week I went to the movies and this lady had her phone up like this, texting. Like she rose it up so, like she wanted everyone to see she was texting. I don't know. I, I what just, was she writing? Do you remember? You I, see don't, it? I don't know. I just I politely asked her to put her phone away. She's probably like, I'm at the movies right now. I was very nice, but I am the person who I'll give you a minute if you're talking to be like, hey, shut, sh- be quiet. He's sh- actually sh- a good person to go to the theaters with because he'll do that and you don't have to. <laughs> you get a little embarrassed after, but he'll be like, can you stop? <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I, do the, I do the glare if I can. i will just it's like... The glare. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's like when you ask someone to keep it down or to put their phone away, they look at you like you have eight heads. They look at you like you're a crazy person. How could you? It's like we just watched the three-minute ad of the theater asking you to not to use your phone and not to talk. But I'm crazy because I'm politely asking you not to be making noise. I get it. But the thing with streaming versus theaters is I think a problem with a lot of these corporations buying these studios... In making these movies specifically for streaming, of course, because of the lockdowns and the pandemic, studios were kind of like thinking They were the panicking. Fly. They you didn't know what fi- was going to happen. They are trying to figure it out. There was, was no future. Same day in theaters as streaming. Do we do streaming only? Is this going to be forever? Are people ever going to go back to the theaters? Thank God people are going back to the theaters. Box office is getting there. We were at like in the high 40s of million, I mean, billions per year. Right before the lockdown, like I think twenty nineteen was like forty seven billion global box office. I believe office. it was the best year of Huge. film. Well, box every office. year was the best year yeah. of film for like ten years straight. Mm-hmm. And then lockdown, we're right now. It's like tw- Bitcoin. Twenty twenty two. I lost all my money on Bitcoin. Twenty twenty two, it was like twenty seven billion global box office, which is you know, it's good, it's it's not super healthy, but it's still it's rising though. Back. It's getting back. Yeah we'll get there hopefully someday but i think still some people will never go to the theaters again a lot of people will never go in public again which is fine and obviously the in streaming was eventual i think this just expedited the situation whether it's streaming in versus theaters for tv shows and movies or or remote working that was going to happen at some point obviously the startups were doing it google was doing it twitter was doing it it was going to happen at some point It just covid expedited everything Agreed. Like, yeah. ex, like real quickly so i but the problem with a lot of these streaming movies in my opinion is They don't have to make a box office. They don't have to worry about making a great movie to get a return. Sometimes we get great movies. There are some gems in there, but sometimes you just kind of get the same thing over and over again you're kind of tuning out within a couple minutes. You're on your phone. It's not the same experience. Rewatch value is so low. Some people don't even finish it. We don't even know what the real statistics are in terms of how many people actually watch this show all how many the way through. Actually watch this yeah. movie. Obviously, they they report what they report, but like, do we trust them completely? But they don't have to worry about making their money at the box office because Netflix burns money for a living. That's what they do. <laughs> they just light money on fire twenty four seven. They yeah. don't care. They have so much money and cash that they can make these movies that not they don't, they? don't have the artistic artistic integrity of when studios needed to make money at the box office to make a great movie or try really hard at it. Yeah, so I would say that's a good point because the studios used to compete against each other so hard, and it was like we need to make the next Oscar winner, we need to make the next movie that everyone's talking about, and they were they would put all their eggs into like one basket and like really go hard into it, just try to make great films. But I feel like nowadays, the so the streaming services and a lot of the studios, they're just trying to make as much. As they can to get people on their app, to get people to subscribe, to keep people on the monthly payments, and so it's it's, much content. Yeah, so it's quantity over quality right now, and it's I'm beginning to really see it in the oversaturation of like so many movies come out every year and so many TV shows coming out. Like, you can't keep up with it all, and you really have to, like, in a way, choose, like, a couple of apps to watch films and TV shows on because there's just so much content, and the library catalogs are insane. There's just too much to look at, so they might... We got jobs. We got cats to feed. Come on. they They might be pursuing just, like, as many thumbnails for people to click on and that's, like, their priority over... And also, like, just buying movies and redoing them again and just doing a not just a reboot, just, like, re, let's, re, let's remake White Man Can't Jump. Like, why? 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 It's a classic. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. How can you remake that movie? Origins. <laughs> Where did they learn how to shoot the basketball? <laughs> Origins. When she start watching Jeopardy. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> When she start watching Jeopardy. <laughs> that's good. Because you watch White Man Can't Jump for Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. That's why you watch it there's like these two icons you know and i feel like they're kind of pursuing just like let's buy ips and redo them and they're gonna send the same time period with the crop top like wesley with that crop top you can't re- re- can't replicate that come on the guy's like a legend. Woody harrelson i mean that's a movie that I'm, I'm always unhappy about hearing the reboot because it's a classic i love that but w- actually how about we give it a little update on the short film because I yeah. know a lot of people are curious we wrapped production in december it was only a three-day shoot but it was extensive. We were like twelve hours a day. It was two months of prep, though. Yeah, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of prep work. It was so much fun. It was a blast. We had, we, had, we had a terrific time filming in different locations all over Los Angeles and the deserts in Palmdale, which is only about an hour north. But how about we give a little update? Originally, we wanted to screen it, screen it here, but we can't because we would lose eligibility for entering and submitting to film festivals. Yeah, unfortunately. So. I've been getting a lot of DMs about it. So we're going to do this festival circuit. So we're going to be submitting to festivals over the next several months. And there's uh, different deadlines, different days to submit, different dates for every festival. So for about six months, we'll be sending them in. And each festival takes about two to three months to get back to you on a response if you're accepted or not. And then also they'll have the delay of when they actually do their festival like Sundance opened submissions on in May, but they're actually doing Sundance like right now this week. So it's a very delayed process. For so, 2024, we yeah. submit. So if we even get into a major festival, we won't be able to show it to anyone. So... Uh, We will be doing a private screening for cast and crew, so there's some cast and crew here today, and everyone involved in the film will be able to watch it sometime, hopefully in February, but until then, we're not going to be able to release it until we get to hear back from festivals. We're so grateful for everyone who supported us, because that's the main goal, and obviously the podcast, we love doing and it's connected with us with people around the world, and I mean, people flew out to see us, it's incredible, thank you so much. It's amazing. I I can't believe more than 10 people showed up, to be honest. I'm honestly shocked. I'm so grateful. Hey, people like you, man. (laughs) I think they're here for you. Come on. Okay, yeah. Look look at that smile. Look at the glasses. You have the same fucking smile. (laughs) (laughs) I got a little chip in my tooth. That's about it. We're so grateful because that's... The opportunity was given us to start doing these small productions and these short films and we want to do more... Because of everyone who tunes into our show, to everyone who subscribes, everyone who's a patron, everyone who supports us monthly and keeps the lights on and pays the rent. And it's, now we're full time on this show. I left my job November 2021, peace. right? I was like, peace out. See ya. But it's only because of everyone here and everyone who supports us, and we're so grateful, and we're so lucky and fortunate. I try to remind myself of that all the time, to not take it for granted and always just... That's why we're so communicative in the DMs and responding to people, and we want to interact with you as much as possible, whether you're a fan or a friend or a family member. But you gave us the opportunity to start... Our business and start Mirror Image Productions, which is the main belt of of Raiders of the Lost the Podcast, Umbrella. and start making short films. And we and found use for our random IMDb knowledge, exactly. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, when I begot, became obsessed with films, I would just go on IMDb and Wikipedia, and I'd become like an expert on like Joe Pesci and. Like <laughs> random, sh- random what stuff. Was Joe Pesci up to in 1990. Goodfellas in Home Alone at the Whoa, same wow, time, the same year. That's crazy. Great fun fact for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is about the podcast is this is what we used to do in the kitchen every morning. Yeah. We'd be like making coffee, be like, "Hey, did you hear about uh, Chris Nolan's new movie?" It's yeah, uh, so the Once Upon a Time meme. Like, ooh, uh, shush, shush. I can't whistle, but you get? I'm saying. You lost me. You get what I'm You're saying. Southern a whistle. Leo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the oh, watching FBI. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a good guy. It's a good guy. But like we used to just shoot the, the shit about movies all the time 24-7 whether we're in the kitchen driving in a car somewhere or just hanging out. We would always talk about movies and film and... Even just like critiquing movies, and and now it's just turned into our job and our profession. It's just wild, and i I feel so grateful. Yeah, it's amazing to connect with so many people who also have the same mutual interest and love of cinema. I remember when we first started our Patreon. Which Patreon, if you don't know, it's just a basically a monthly subscription where people can support you. We have tiers from two to hundred dollars, and we were like, should we start a Patreon? Like, will people even pay money to support us? And I mean, it's crazy. As soon as we started, Dawson was number two. Dawson. second patron he's been he's been a patron for that long dawson since june 2020 or whenever we started dawson it, flew out here dawson flew out here from uh, atlanta uh calvin flew him out but it's crazy that people support us and they connect with our show so much and again i just feel so lucky and fortunate absolutely who's who's your favorite director of all time yeah it's tough to choose because it kind of changes i feel like depending on where i am in my life and also the films that are coming out from those directors but i feel like my core, I know. got answer. I know that it's Chris Nolan. And I, I know in my core, but all Guess the, what? We have him here. <laughs> no, 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 But we then know. like there's that critique oh, like a Chris Nolan fanboy, like whatever. You know what? I love the guy so much. But then like Tarantino and Kubrick, they're up there as well. But I would say my favorite like Chris Nolan, whenever he has a new movie coming out, I'm gonna be there opening night, first in line. I, I try to find out everything I can about that film and I'm just so ecstatic. And when I when I go to see a Nolan film for the first time, I don't think I'm more excited in my entire life besides when I'm sitting in the theater when the trailer stops when Nicole Kidman gets off the screen and <laughs> then obviously Sin Copy, Chris Nolan's company comes up with that pattern. Like, I'm oh, fuck, like, yeah. oh my God, here, here we go. go. And like when The Dark Knight Rises with the Bane theme playing in the background at IMAX, IMAX obviously seeing a Chris Nolan movie. When I see the Sign Copy logo, I just, I feel so happy. It's like my, my favorite moment in my life every uh-huh. time I see a Nolan movie for the first time. That's adorable. That's the best way to describe it. But I love Tarantino because Tarantino really made me fall in love with film at a young age, not in terms of like, I want to do this for a living or is it an idea until you really fueled that passion, lit that flame underneath us that Big like, time. we could do this for a living, bro. It's taken a little while, but we're we're working on it. <laughs> but um Tarantino, they're like the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs when I was a teenager and Pulp Fiction and then Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. We saw those movies like 50 times a piece. I love those movies. I and clearly remember seeing them in theaters too. They were huge. And I would say one of my all-time favorite movie theater experiences was seeing the Hateful Eight on 70mm film on projected Christmas. projected on Christmas Day back in like 2015 or 16 when that came out. And... It, we can talk about film and digital for a little bit because film—you don't see it anymore at theaters unless it's a special screening. Projected, like, yeah, yeah, like actual projected film with a with a film projector and it's beaming onto the screen with the actual celluloid. Most of the times you go to theaters since about two thousand four, two thousand five, you're seeing just a very high quality digital Blu-ray basically of the movie, which is, still looks terrific. But there's something about seeing film in person that it's it's a different experience. It's organic, you know. The best way to, I, for me to describe film versus digital is. You go to, like, an, art, an art, art, art show, and you see, like, an actual art paint. Bro. Yeah, or, like, like Art Pro over here. You go to an art show, you see an actual painting, and then next to it you see, like, a very high-quality photograph or print of that painting. For me, that's the difference between film versus digital, where film, it's organic, it's real, it's real matter. And you go there, and you can see the flickering. Like, most recently, we saw Licorice Pizza on 70 millimeter mm-hmm. film. Yeah. And uh, what, what's, what town was it recently? Around here in Brentwood or something like that. Westwood. The Westwood yeah. Theater over there, beautiful, gorgeous. But like you see the flickering, you can you can hear the reel before it starts, before the movie starts, and you just know it's a different experience. Same thing when I saw Dunkirk in 70 millimeter. Same thing when I saw Interstellar in 35 millimeter. Whenever I see film projected, it's just a different experience. So I, I think digital and film, there's a huge difference. And I love when filmmakers like Tarantino, Scorsese, Nolan, Jordan Peele now are trying to keep filmmaking alive in terms of using film and using celluloid, shooting on IMAX cameras. 35 millimeter, 70 70 millimeter, depending on the size of the frame and the celluloid. I think it's so important to keep that alive. And those guys are so integral to the future of film. And obviously there are filmmakers like David Fincher who use digital in an amazing way and better than anyone. And I think Stanley Kubrick, if he was still making films today, would be shooting on digital because of the absolute control you have to be able to. Because they can put the screens in Video Village and when you're shooting on film, but it's not exactly 100 percent what it's going to look like. And What's the Video village, village? Tell everyone. It's just like a, a big setup of video screens of like what you're filming. And, and even with a film camera, even though it's shooting on film, it can translate digitally like what the image will look like, basically, even though it's gonna, it hasn't even been processed. Yeah, yet. so on-set Video Village is yeah. where the, the prompters are on the screens for everyone to see what you're yeah. just filming or filming right now. But digital filmmaking has come a long way. And, and David Fincher, I mean, he, he was using HD, back in, with Zodiac. That was HD photography. Would, even Danny Boyle with 28 yeah. Days Later, that was on those DV digital yeah. cameras. I don't even... It was like, what, 1280p HD? Yeah, it wasn't even full true HD. So even if you're a great filmmaker, you can still make a, an excellent film and make it look good, but 28 Days Later is something where you watch it nowadays and doesn't quite age properly visually. It hold up well. Uh, you can see it's kind of a little pixely and a little just, just not sharp, but Dave, I think David Fincher has really come a long way with um, pursuing digital f- photography he makes it look incredible, but also I find like a flatness to the image of digital for most other filmmakers. And and oftentimes when I watch digital cinematography, it just feels like a little too much like I'm watching TV. But with film, it has the texture, it has the grain, it's an actual physical thing that's creating the image. And it almost has like this tangible three-dimensional quality to it, especially when you're watching it lit up on a projector with motion. And there's something special about that. And even when you look at a film photograph, there's still something different about it when you compare it to a digital photograph or like an iPhone photograph or even something like a disposable camera there ha- there's a different quality to it and when I watch a film that's actually shot on film and if you're lucky enough to see it projected onto film it makes all the difference in the world and it really showcases like the power of that imagery and, and also there's something special about when you're shooting on film you don't know what it's going to look like the next day until you get the dailies and you're, it's the the film especially in the before they had video village before they could see it, it was all basically guesswork and estimation with cinematographers and DPs and gaffers and the, and the directors being like, I guess this will look good. We'll see what happens tomorrow when we get the footage back after it's processed. So there's really spe- something special about them. Every shot, you're like taking a chance. And it could be like maybe the film came out of the reel by accident and you get to reshoot that entire scene. So there's something really incredibly magical about like not being able to see it on the screen perfectly while you're shooting and just being, be- hey, we're a bunch of artists. We're taking a chance on this crazy lighting setup." And we'll see in a couple of days if it even got shot. So I think there's really something really cool about that. And that's why I love watching older films because it's all based upon... That like intangibility of like we'll see what happens if it got in the shot, but mostly we got it. Yeah, but I think there's really something really cool about that. Well, The Godfather, they in movies like that, they still had somewhat of a, a film reel editor on set that they uh, could yeah. kind of look inside. It was like this big contraption. You would put like a blanket over you so so none would so no one would get exposed light it, yeah. to the to the celluloid celluloid, you can't get any light on it, and you can kind of like cut it up. Like if you saw the Fablemans, if any, did anyone see the Fablemans this year? couple people. Those are my favorite movies of the year. He used this little film reel editor. They kind of had something like that for movie sets that were shooting on film in the 70s. It wasn't super common to use, but they still had kind of an editing system to see and make sure they got footage on set of movies they were filming, but... Still wasn't perfect, but that's kind of what adds to those old films in the '70s and the '80s. And I think '70s is still probably the best era of film and the best decade of film because it was just a, and, and music as well. Like mom and dad, you had the best era of music. I'm I'm, I'm so jealous. You grew up in the '70s. Disco, like <laughs> not even just disco, but rock and roll. Classic. Same thing with game. film. The film in the '70s was so incredible. But I think there's something to it different. It It's kind of like the Wild West of filmmaking. It for a while, it's special. There's nothing like it to this day. We still have great movies coming out this year. Speaking of David Fincher, I mean, we have The Killer coming out this year. Who's a David Fincher fan? Yeah, so excited about this movie. Michael Fassbender playing an assassin who's questioning his psychology sign psychological headspace. It sign it's, me up. Sounds incredible. I think they're a perfect pair. Fassbender and Fincher. And Fassbender right now, if you don't know, he's a race car driver, and he had like three months off, and he managed to be able to work it into his window to do this film. And I think I'm very excited to see what those two come up with together. I can't wait. This is yeah. badass. He's like Paul Newman, just a race car driver. You He's gotta cool have a cool guy. Different mentality, be like a movie star and a race car driver. Yeah. Paul Newman was, I think he's one of the greatest movie stars of all time. Paul Newman. He might be yeah. top up there. Yeah. Him and Tom. Tom. Don't forget about Tom Cruise. <laughs> of course not. Well, of we'll course sp- not. Well, speaking of favorite movie theater experiences, Hateful Eight for Me is up there. What about you? What are some of your favorite movie theater experiences? Well, obviously, there will be, like I mentioned earlier, was big. But I remember seeing The Matrix as when I, when we were nine, I think. Jamie took Jamie us. Jamie took us. I didn't to really to understand what I was watching. At so price. I remember when we got back, we tried to explain it to mom, but I'm sure we sounded like we were out of our minds. What'd didn't didn't you give the boys? <laughs> Did they drop LSD? <laughs> but I still remember just seeing the the green um, text, like the the texture they have, the, the code, and just being absolutely floored by something that was so extravagant and unbelievable. And I remember just absolutely being floored. And when I left that theater, I was like, that was special. I've never seen anything like that before. So The Matrix, as a kid, to watch in a crowded theater was definitely something special that I remember. Second viewing that movie, you, you understand it completely, but that's that's probably my all-time favorite movie. I would say Good is back. The Matrix mm-hmm. because of it just changed my perception on reality. I love movies that make you think about your reality and question life. And is there another like dimension? Is this a simulation? No one really knows because we don't know what happens after we die, and <laughs> we don't know what We're the world's deep. really about. It's yeah. deep. It's well, a deep like- movie. <laughs> I love those movies that make you question reality. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's really fascinating to talk about that and. You know, it's one of those things where people kind of don't want to address. You know, you go outside at night, and you're like, there's freaking stars in the moon, and no one talks about it. Like, We're this is a crazy. You walk outside at night, no one talks about it anymore. It's yeah. wild. There's another film, recent, like a recent film for me. It was Parasite. And I had been a Bong Joon-ho film fan for a long time. The first film I saw from him was The Host, which came out, I think, in 2005, but I watched it on DVD. That was and, on Amazon Prime for a while, too. Yeah. but And after I watched that, I watched all of his films, like Memories of Murder and Mother and... I was like, man, who is this guy? This guy's films are amazing. So when Parasite was getting marketed and the trailers were out, I was like, I can't wait to see this. And when I saw it, I saw it at the Los Feliz Theater. I remember clearly just by myself with the, I think it was opening weekend. And I was just completely Just by yourself in the theater. how you like it <laughs> I love it I love it <laughs> <laughs> no one to distract you but it was it was an incredible experience and it's to this day one of my favorite cinematic experiences I think that's a very special film and I, it's like I try not to judge films too quickly with recency bias to be like oh this is the best film ever but I've seen it I think five times now and judging it I try to judge it based on a lot of films from history and to this day I still think that I think it's definitely a top 25 movie in film history and wh- I remember when that movie was over and the credits were rolling, I was just stunned and just in awe of what i just seen. And I came home and I was like, dude, you got to see this movie Parasite. You have to see it ASAP. And I haven't eaten a peach since. <laughs> no peaches. That And call me by your name. <laughs> <laughs> that was James' second awakening. Yeah. <laughs> no, I felt the same way with Parasite 2. And that was one of those word-of-mouth films where it – No one was really talking about it until after a couple of weeks in release. And that's why I still think there's still that strength of word of mouth. Same thing with Get Out. Get Out had like a pretty low opening weekend, but word of mouth, that movie ended up making $300 million on a $3 million budget, which is wild. And then Parasite wasn't a huge budget. That pulled $300 million globally too, as well. And also it won four, it cleaned up at the Oscars too. Parasite won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best International Feature. And there's a reason why when Bong Joon-ho accepted his award, he thanked Martin Scorsese Marty. for his, his filmography because that guy is probably... The most influential filmmaker of all time. He's up there for sure, especially the last 50 years. And we love Marty. We talk about him all the time. He's top five filmmaker. He's, I think he's your favorite filmmaker, My favorite, right? yeah. But he's, he's top three for me. And I think Goodfellas is in my top three for favorite films of all time. But what he's done with film is incredible. But to see like someone who's such a prolific filmmaker internationally with Bong Joon-ho just think... An American filmmaker like Martin Scorsese to kind of give the recognition of where he came from as a filmmaker and what influenced him to make films like Parasite and just to show so much homage to like such a great director like Marty. In that same year, Sam Mendes actually won the Globe for Best Director and he also thanked Martin Scorsese. That for, for Skyfall or no? No, 2019 for, 2019? Um, for um, 1917. Oh, yeah, that's right. So those that came out awesome. the same year. 1917 was the front runner and then Parasite cleaned up. I think deservedly so, but 1917 is still an all time movie. It was a great year for film, 2019. We've had some great war movies recently. Obviously, All Quiet on the Western Front, but 1917, and then also, what's another recent great war movie? I was going to, I just lost Hexar my Ridge, track. Ridge is great. Which one? Hexar Ridge. Hexar Ridge was awesome, yeah. yeah. I love war movies too. Yeah. We, they're really fantastic. It's like that kind of time machine, a relic of the past, a great way to understand what the world is like. Yeah, but I think Bong Joon Ho and Sam Mendez doing that, they're, they're showing that, like Scorsese, especially in American cinema, he, his, in, his artistic integrity and his uh, exce- excelling of the medium, trying new things like Raging Bull is a boxing film, but he shot it all black and white and oftentimes like surrealist filmmaking, and incredible cinematography, so much incredible filmmaking. And he made several masterpieces before he even got won his Oscar for The Departed, which is still a great film, but when, even compared to his other films, it's not even close, but Scorsese's also been able to bounce around genres like nobody else, whether it be dark comedy or like Kings of New York, and to work with Daniel Day-Lewis and just get one of his best performances out of him, do something. And his collaborations with De Niro and DiCaprio are some of the best ever, but he really helped evolve the medium and the format in how you direct a film, and if you watch Scorsese films, even if it's Age of Innocence, which is a romantic period piece, like the filmmaking in it is absurdly incredible. It's incredible. And his camera movements, how he's using the camera, how he's editing, the production design, the authenticity. The authenticity. There's really nobody ever that's ever been like him in film history. But also, he is standing on the shoulders of other filmmakers. But in America, with the... With the creation of new forms of the industry, of new technology, of new uh, practical ways of filming, as the new gear and equipment's being built and ways of shooting film, he's he's still using that to this day. He's still adapting to the times of new filmmaking. He might be the best chameleon of a director of all time. He can kind of fit in whatever era. When you think about Martin Scorsese's career, every decade he arguably made if not the best movie of that decade or one of the best movies i mean 1970s with taxi driver arguably arguably the best movie from the 70s uh 1980s with aging raging, raging bull which was 19, well, that was 1980 i think and yeah. then goodfellas in 1990 come on the best it's movie great. The, it's got to be the best movie of the 90s 2000s, he made gangs of new york the aviator in the departed in the departed kid. And Hugo, and hugo and hugo. hugo's great 3d it's filmmaking, great movie. yeah james cameron still says his best 3d, 3D film film. he's ever seen yeah. he's ever seen and then the 2010s, what do you Wolf mean? of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street's awesome. And then we have Kills of the Flower Moon coming out in 2023. Oh, so yeah. We have so many goats. Shutter Island's great, Shutter too. Shutter Island's awesome. But it's we have true. so many goats making movies this year with Fincher. Denis Ridley Hall. Scott. Yeah, Ridley Scott's got a movie coming out. Uh, we have Barbie with Greta Gorg. Who's excited about Barbie? Uh, who's going <laughs> to do a double feature of Barbie Oppenheimer? <laughs> What are you gonna see first, Barbie for an appetizer, then entree with <laughs> Oppenheimer? Yeah, I feel like that's the the move I'm, to make. I'm so curious about Barbie. It looks like it's gonna be like a surrealist musical set in like the world of Barbie existing in in as like a world, and it looks like it's gonna have a lot of musical numbers. And the set design looks fantastic. and It kind of reminds me of from what I could see from the trailer, like Elf, where you could see like the the studio soundstage walls in the background. It looks like they're doing the same thing with that because it's like fun and it's just it's they're not taking it too seriously. And I think... Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are amazing writers and filmmakers too. So I'm very curious to see like a final trailer to see what exactly is going on there. Yeah, I was just so curious for the tone of that movie Forever because Greta Gerwig's gonna make a Barbie movie, like what is going on? And then Mattel, obviously it's gonna be a toy commercial at the same time because Mattel, they're trying to sell those Barbie dolls. <laughs> they're, gonna, they're gonna slang those things for years now because of this movie, but the cast is stacked. But I was just so curious for the tone of that movie. We finally got that trailer. It looks really exciting. And- I, I I don't love musicals, but I, I enjoy some of them. So I think I'll enjoy it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I, we're, we're big fans of Granite Gerwig, so it should be fun. Absolutely. And Gosling, obviously. <laughs> the tan. It's probably fake. <laughs> <laughs> judgy. So judgy. Hollywood, man. Is your tan fake? No, my is not fake. It's, you know, I run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anthony, uh, how about some other... Uh, Favorite movie theater experiences besides, for me, Hateful Eight, Interstellar, and just Nolan movies in general. I saw The The Exorcist on Halloween night at Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston on 35mm film projection. Original print, too. Yeah, it was an old print, so it was like dusty and kind of torn here and there, but that added to it. But it was a packed theater, and it was like midnight on Halloween, and it was like 300 people in the theater watching The Exorcist on the big screen and it was really remarkable and everybody loved it and it was just electric the, the the feeling in the room and to this day it's still definitely one of my favorite experiences what was your favorite experience from 2022 in the theaters top gun maverick yeah baby? <laughs> how many times did you see it i saw it three times i also i saw it forty x with uh, with mo and kelly they're watching online and it was the seats would move so the seats banked left and right whenever like a, a jet would bank and when the engines would erupt like your, your seat would shake it was crazy <laughs> and then whenever there was an explosion or gunfire it would just strobe strobe lights would go off in the theater it was really immersive i'm glad i did it for the third time watching it and not the first time because it was a little distracting but it was still like a great new way to experience the film and tom cruise is right there running dialogue <laughs> <laughs> She was rubbing my shoulders <laughs> but i think that top Gun maverick was it, just pure escapism especially seeing it in imax with the sound with the The visual filmmaking of that was remarkable, actually filming it on these jets, and it was so minimal CGI, and I was just really... Just having a blast. I was just smiling that entire film the first time I yeah, saw it. Top Gun for me is probably number one in the year. But also I love the Batman so much. The movie is incredible. Even yeah. though we've had, what, nine Batman movies now, it still was different. It felt authentic. And I loved the experience there. And it looked great with Greg Fraser, cinematography. But I will say that besides Top Gun, I think my my next favorite experience I had in the theaters was the Fablemans. And if anyone hasn't seen it, Spielberg still has it. It was a magical film about filmmaking, about falling in love with cinema, but not just falling in love with cinema, but falling in love with any kind of passion, whatever your dream is, and how someone d- develops that love for, for the craft of any kind of art form. And it was so magical, and, and I cried, and I laughed like a dozen times, cried like four or five times, but laughed out loud a dozen times. It was hysterical. It was, and laugh? it was I cried <laughs> laughing. It was so hysterical and so well made. And... I just love that experience. If anyone hasn't seen The Fablemans yet, I highly recommend it. Even though Spielberg has made 37 movies, he's still got it. And then Everything Everywhere was really special because I like the Daniels from Swiss Army Man, which is really like a bonkers film if anybody's seen it, uh, with Paul Dano and Radcliffe. It's insane. And this still had the same tone of that. But both of these films, with all the crazy humor, they still have so much emotional gravitas. And Everything Everywhere... I was shocked at how funny it was. Like, the first 20 minutes of that movie, hysterical. Like, the entire crowd was erupting in laughter. But also, it was blending great emotional resonance, great drama, great inter-familial dynamics. But then, this amazing sci-fi adventure. uh, And I just really had an absolute blast watching that film. It was so emotional, so entertaining, so fun. It was definitely one of my favorite experiences of the last few years. We'd like to do a, a Q&A as well. So we're wel- we'd are we love to take questions from the audience. Ask us anything you want about movies. You want to give us a film topic, that's cool. Ask us a question about anything. Also online. and Yeah, so any, online as well. So anyone ask anything you want. We'd love to just communicate with you all in the audience and online. So does anyone have any Q&A questions? Here we go, Dawson. <laughs> Better not be inappropriate. <laughs> Grandma's watching. So what's your beef with Return of the Jedi, man? Like, what's going on there? What's going on? It's still not over it. So Dawson's favorite movie is Return of the Jedi. And we don't have beef with it. We just don't think it's the best Star Wars movie, all right? It's top five. Top it's pretty. It's good. It's a good one. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. It's a good one. It's got a great on, ending. Empire Strikes Back is the Best Star Wars movie, hands down. No, not a chance. Sorry. Here guys, they come. Right. They're coming in hot. <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. I'm sorry, <laughs> but hey, man, I don't have beef with it. It's just Empire's lit. The movie's amazing. I have beef with it. <laughs> I think it's boring. It's that, boring. It's come boring. Come dance first party hour. at the end. It's a, it's a little much. Well, yeah. Selling toys in that movie. Unsubscribed. <laughs> All right. Any any other? Come on. Any? We'd love to hear from anybody online. About, Does anyone have a question? Here we go. We got a question right here. So you guys are obviously uh, Tarantino fans. Um, Do you think he's ever going to make any more than just the ten films he keeps talking about, or do you think he's really just going to settle on like the
1: ten for films, films? yeah,
0: feature length? I think he's he's like kind of insinuated he wants to do TV. So I think he's like found a loophole and still making projects and. Obviously, I'd love for him to make more. I respect the fact that he he's gonna stop at ten because he doesn't want to like go out as losing his opinion or losing his. He wants to go on a high note, on a high note. Yeah. He doesn't want to lose the public and, and how people think of him and, and like lose his skill. He he wants to still remain relevant. That's why he wants to stop at ten before he's like in his opinion probably loses his his prime. But I think he's found a loophole. He's going to do TV. So I think he might do a miniseries. So he's, I mean, I, can only, I can't speak for him, but I think that he might be in his 70s and be like, I have a great idea for a movie. I think he won't be able to resist the urge to make it. I think he's messing with people, too. Like, remember when Logic, the rapper, retired for like six months and he came back with an album? Like Tom, Tom Brady retired. retired to market Brady brand. Like, of course I bought a t-shirt, <laughs> but like, I mean, I, th- I think he's messing with people. It's great marketing, but I think he, if I was him, I'd. If he doesn't want to, it's his, it's his life, but I think he wants to be an author as well and write novels, but I think loophole, do TV series, do miniseries, do some streaming shows. I know he, he wants to direct TV at some point, but no matter what, whatever the 10th movie is, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Do you want to see like a Kill Bill 3? That's a lot of rumors. I, I, I don't know if I'd want to see that. I want to see something new because yeah. I loved yeah, Once yeah, Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. That was such kind of like a unique film, in, and I love that because it's just like a callback to LA. We got some questions online. What we got? Uh, George Movies and Stuff said, Is Hans Zimmer the greatest film composer of all time? He's my favorite, but John Williams is the GOAT. It's John. I agree. I have the same answer. Same I would answer. even put like, it's like John, then Bernard Herrmann, and then, I mean, Hans is just my favorite because of what he's done the last 20 years. I put Hans years. over Bernard Herrmann. I, um, he's, too, he's, he's too inventive. He's changed it, and the amount of work he does is absurd. Like, we get three yeah. films a year from Hans Zimmer, and, and he's my most listened to uh, musician of all time. From Caleb... Other than Blade Runner or Dune, what's your favorite Denis Villeneuve movie? It's I'd prisoners, probably say Prisoners. Prisoners. Sicario definitely. is excellent as well, but Prisoners is really special. I think that's that's a masterpiece of the last ten years for sure because of what they did. The filmmaking, the the cinematography from Roger Deakin's, it really showcases how important cinematography can be for telling a story where, you know, the whole theme of the film is Prison and people being stuck in prisons in the cinematography, their own prisons. Yeah, yeah, in their own, they're framed in their own prisons, whether it be in a window or in a car or like in the frame of a door. So, like, I think the cinematography, the storytelling, the, the acting is phenomenal. I think that's might be my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal performance. He's awesome in that. He was excellent as well. Yeah, he's great. Paul Dano for sure. From Matthew, what's your favorite Hitchcock film? I'm going. I got to go with Rear Window. I think it's incredible. And also the film, the entire movie, the entire film is just in one room, and yet you have one of the most suspenseful, thrilling films of all time. It's really remarkable cinematography, camera work, and acting, It's I think it's James Stewart's best role, Grace Kelly's great uh, co-lead, and just to make one of the greatest films of all time set in one room, he doesn't shoot outside the room, Everything you see is through the window or inside that small space, and it's really something special. The Whale reminded me so much of Rear Window. Similar, if yeah. you haven't seen it, the entirety of that film takes place in one setting, one interior location. You kind of go outside a little bit, but same thing with Rear Window. Only great filmmakers like Aronofsky... In Alfred Hitchcock can tell a, an effective and all time story from one location. I love I love that a lot. But I also I love Psycho obviously. And North by Northwest is is incredible. Ropes super underrated. Rebecca's really great. So you said name off every every Hitchcock film. Movie. So I I, typical appease, I appease everybody with this. <laughs> all right, uh, Psycho. Just pick one. Psycho. 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 Thank you. Cliche. Cliche. Answer the question. <laughs> 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 do We have any more in the audience? Jacob, we got a bunch over here. Yeah. yeah. So Calvin, I, I, start. Just do all of them. Sorry, here. I got it right here already. Um, uh, Anthony, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier. I just feel like. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm like overloaded with content and like in the industry right now, I feel like it's just like pump something out and it's just so disposable. But some of my favorite experiences, something that like I can watch and like, I'll be thinking about that film for like the rest of the week or a while or revisit it constantly and constantly. And I feel like that's, what's really, really important. I feel like I'm kind of missing. It's just like, they're just, I'm overloaded and like, I can't catch up or keep up with everything that's coming out. Just wondering what, like, your guys' thoughts on that. Well, uh, that's a great point because what really makes a movie rewatchable, I think, is when you see it, when it's, when you make an experience the first time you see it, when you watch it on a big screen in a crowded theater, it's more of a, an event and you remember that experience rather than, I mean, you can watch it on your laptop in your bed. You're not going to really remember, oh, I remember watching that movie on my phone. Like, that's not really a thing. But I remember seeing that in a packed theater and 200 people were laughing together. That's something, it makes it rewatchable 'Cause you're kinda connecting to that moment from your past of it. It's an event. It's not just another thumbnail you clipped on clipped on, on Netflix. It's like an experience you had. With other people. So I think the best way to make movies rewatchable is to release them in theaters. But it's also a complex, nuanced issue because every movie you saw that was made before 1995, because you True. weren't remembering movies, you saw streaming or you rented it. So you still saw that at home. But I think because movies have changed so much in terms of the corporatization of cinema and how they're pumping out movies, not for box office, just for content, it's changed the landscape of like the average movie from before streaming. Was usually a lot better than the the average movie that comes out today. We still get great films, but obviously the first time I saw Pulp Fiction in two thousand one, Space Odyssey, I didn't see it in theaters. I wasn't alive really for for obviously two thousand one. <laughs> but Pulp Fiction, <laughs> I was very young for <laughs> Pulp Fiction, but I saw that on TV for the first time. But still, those movies were were such masterpieces that it still sticks with you. But I think because of the overload of content that you're talking about, you don't really they don't stick with you. The rewatch value is super low, which we were talking about earlier, because it's it's not the same experience and it's not. They're not trying to hit a box office anymore for half their movies. They're just trying to just keep people entertained and click the play button, really. For a lot of films, there's still plenty of great streaming movies that come out. Like, we like Prey a lot, but that movie has a low rewatch value. I don't really remember it too often, op- yeah. too much because I was in my in the living room watching it with you. you know, and also, you, but the, the influx of so many movies to watch, you kind of like, oh, there's so many movies to watch this year. I, I'm not going to rewatch a movie I watched last year. I think that's I a problem, too. I agree. So many. All right. We've got some more questions over here. What's going on, guys? What's up, hey, bud? bud. Hey, uh, So, this is about Babylon. Did you guys see that one yeah? Saw Babylon, yeah. What, you got a question? About so, we're order? talking about, like, memorable experiences, right? Uh-huh. So, like, I feel like I've been having a lot of negative memorable experiences <laughs> uh, lately. Uh, where you're kind of asking yourself, like, how the hell do people get away with making decisions like this? What did you guys think about... The ending. Now, like, no spoilers, because obviously the ending spoils oh, the, the itself. itself. Yeah. The last, like, couple minutes. The, the montage. I-, I was a little, I feel, I-, I understand what he was trying to do, and Damien Giselle is a, such a talented filmmaker. I mean, Whiplash as your debut film. That's a m- modern masterpiece for a lot of people, and I think that's his best movie probably it's still. One of the best <laughs> debuts ever. And then La La Land's incredible. I think First Man is so underrated. I love that movie. And then, obviously, we're really excited to see Babylon. The filmmaking is exceptional for Babylon. Every aspect of it, whether it's acting, uh, cinematography, I hope that gets nominations and wins. It, it is sort of incredible, um, but it's not my. It's my fourth on my list for Damien Chazelle movies, and I think for him, he's such a talented guy. He got complete creative freedom. That's my guess, and it doesn't work for everybody. And I think he's okay with making that kind of movie. You know, some filmmakers they like stirring the pot. They like they know under they know not everyone's gonna love their film. It's gonna create a conversation. So maybe that was his main intention. He's like, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to make this movie how I want to make it. I didn't uh, I didn't love the ending, but I understand what he was doing because for me, there were two movies this year that came out for celebrating film and cinema in the love of filmmaking. One was Fablemans and one was Babylon. And I felt more of a, an appreciation of love of film from Fablemans versus Babylon, which is different. But we, we've had great movies like that. Cinema Paradiso is a great Italian film about the love of cinema and filmmaking. But in terms of the two movies that are made this year for about filmmaking and obviously uh, Empire of, of Light was another one. I think Fableman's my favorite. But I think he's just like, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want make a three hour, 10 minute movie. And you got to sit through this goddamn thing. Yeah, great point. It's a lot of jazz, too. And a trailer at the end. Yeah, 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 basically. <laughs> From Reagan online, what production company would you most want to work with? I would say A24 because they clearly give creative freedom to their artists and filmmakers. Yeah, that's a good answer and for they, sure. And they buy great scripts, like terrific scripts, and they're just, producing cool content. Just trying to stay out of the corporate system right now as is, is much as you can because it's kind of dwindling because, again, Disney has purchased everything, which is not a bad thing, but it's still like you're under the umbrella of a massive corporation now that they pretty much almost most of the time you go to the movies. It's a Disney production. Universal is still big. Warner Brothers is still big. Those are, the big three, yeah. Uh, those Paramount. are the big three for sure. Yeah. And then from Eileen, who would win a thumb war between the two of you? <laughs> who <do> you think? <laughs> Clearly me. Should we do it? No. <laughs> Obviously, you know. Uh, <laughs> any more questions in the crowd? Yeah, here we go. All right. Jacob, and then over there in the middle. I'm contractually obligated to ask this. Uh, what Why film it has sound your so favorite good? sound design? <laughs> favorite sound design in a movie? I would say, I mean, you got to go with, it's going to be the lightsaber in Star Wars. Like, the, the, the doesn't, do sound design a, or the favorite, like, like... Overall in the film. Overall in the I, film. Yeah, I go lightsaber in Star Wars. It's a sound that never existed before, and now it's so ingrained in film history. It's a remarkable sound that the that team crafted. And I feel like a Star Wars movie isn't a Star Wars movie until you hear that saber sound. So I think that the ignition, igniting of the saber and just hearing that whizzing around is so special. Yeah, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark has incredible sound design. But recently, the film The Artist that – did it win Best Picture, The Artist? Yes. So it was a modern-day silent film, but they really showcase how important sound design is because the first, what, hour and 20 minutes of that movie is a silent film, and I love silent film. And then they have a moment in a scene where sound comes in and erupts, and you get an influx of noises from all over the place. So I think that was a really special film to showcase how important sound design is and sound is for any kind of production it might be the most important part of a movie or tv show is sound you can have the greatest camera in the world you can have the most talented cinematographer you can have roger deacons behind the lens you can have an incredible actor great script great director but if it doesn't sound well no one's going to tune into whatever you're filming or whatever you're making so it sounds so important and obviously, the Oscars, in case anyone doesn't know, we, there used to be two sound categories for awards as best mixing sound and design editing. and best sound design and best sound mixing in general yeah. or best sound mix. Now it's just the best sound, which kind of just was kind of a, like a slap in the face of the profession of sound design and obviously I'm sure you understand that too being our sound mixer and I will say the big scale movies tend to get more attention than smaller films, but one of my favorite films for sound design I'm not sure if you watched it yet, blowout from Brian de Palma to watch it uh, so with good. John Trifolta. Volta. He plays the sound designer of films in the movie and De Palma really experiments with showing the audience how film how how film is dependent on sound and audio to really make it work and they do great sound design in the film but also showcase what that work is like and it's a really special movie to understand a vital part of the craft of filmmaking that is very rarely highlighted in any other movies. The quiet movies always like The artist and also A Quiet Place, Quiet Place Part Two, to showcase how important sound is for storytelling as well. Like that, A Quiet Place, the first one, Part One, you barely hear anything for like the first 25 minutes of that movie. There's almost no dialogue spoken. It's all sign language for the first half hour. All you hear is them like kind of tiptoeing through the grocery stores and the crinkle of their bag of chips and stuff like that. And so, films where there's limited sound because it shows you the spots you really need to use sound showcase how important sound is. So, I I would say like a A Quiet Place. And the artists for me are probably my favorite uses of sound design. Great picks. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Sammy. We have more questions. Who we got? Oh, yeah. We do Sammy and then up here in the third row. All right. So I love going to the movie theaters too. What is your favorite movie theater in Los Angeles and then your favorite theater you've ever been to in the world? Oh, great, question. great question. I love the Westwood Theater. That's yeah. where we saw Licorice Which Pizza. Which one though? The one in uh, Brentwood, or it's in yeah, Westwood. There's two. It's right? in Westwood. <laughs> the he next to each other. He loves it so much he I can't loves remember. It so much. <laughs> 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 because it's just one really big theater, one screen, and they always deck out for premieres. The entire exterior of the of the show of the theater, they deck it out. When we saw Licorice Pizza, they had like the pinball machines and everything like that. And I just love seeing film projected there. But we love IMAX. We love AMC's. but, but honestly. Gabriella obviously is our IMAX contact. Whenever we go to IMAX headquarters, we have the most incredible experience seeing the craziest theater, the best IMAX theater where like they go to fine tune the the sound of the movie, and it's the, the most experience, incredible experience every time. So that's a really kind of a private thing that I really think we're so fortunate to be a part of is to get those private screenings at IMAX in Santa Monica. But anytime really, I get to see film projected, that's always my favorite experience, whether it's seventy five millimeter. 30 millimeters sometimes 60 millimeters so i mean the new beverly they do film always as well but whenever i really I... like the vista in Silver lake that's a great theater yeah. It's 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 it was built so long ago they haven't really changed anything about it and they have the old seats and you just walk in there and you feel like oh is it like the 60s am i watching a movie from decades ago it has that great ambiance about it yeah whenever i can see film actual film that's this is my favorite experience but quite question all right we had one over Good here question. third row Hey guys, I know you've talked about like the importance of uh, international cinema on the podcast before, but I was just curious if you guys think that there's like a space for it, for it to grow in the U.S. Because like I know, I feel like it's like it started up again with Parasite, but then like I haven't seen any growth, and I'm I'm just curious if you guys think that there will be growth. That's actually a great agree. question because we talked about yeah. with uh, obviously Bong Joon Ho's Parasite made 300 million dollars drop earlier 2019. And and then Decision to Leave came out same country South Korea from Park Chan Wook did really poorly at the box. I have office. some numbers. So Decision to Leave only made two million dollars in the U.S. box office. Uh, After Sun only made two million. Triangle of Sadness only made four million. Uh, Tar only made six million. And they all did pretty well in their own markets in Europe. They but they weren't like huge hits. But like fifteen million in South Korea is a big hit in South Korea. So Decision to Leave ended up profiting. It made seventeen in total, but. I'm worried that the U.S. market's not interested in international film. Unless it's word of mouth like Parasite. Or something like Squid Game, which everyone watched Squid Game on Netflix. But, I mean, there uh, there are a lot of great movies that came out this year from other countries that uh, just... If you do the math of, like, so say, Decision to Leave from Park Chan-wook, one of the great masters of directing in the world... If two million dollars was the budget, was a box office? That's maybe like a hundred and fifty thousand people saw it in America. Those—that's a really small number of people. So I actually am worried about. I'm not worried that these filmmakers won't be able to keep making movies. I'm not worried that they're not. It's not going to be a thing. But I'm worried that American audiences aren't interested in them anymore. Yeah, and you watch a lot of international filmmakers, especially some Mexican filmmakers. So we're talking about Quaron uh, Alejandro Inarritu, his yeah. latest film, Bardot... Coron de Roma, which was maybe my favorite international film the last 10 years. That is an absolute masterpiece. Those are both Netflix movies. Obviously, they're going there because they're guaranteed they're going to have basically creative freedom to make their movie. What you want from these directors is because they're some of the best of all time. I mean, Iñárritu has got two Oscars. Back to back. Alfonso Cuarón. Does he have an Oscar yet? Yeah. So he won for for Gravity, but I mean, he should have won for Children of Men anyways. He made the best Harry Potter movie with Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, yeah. But these Mexican filmmakers, international filmmakers, of course, it's great. They're getting budgets to make movies for streaming platforms, but they're not getting the box office and international attention from audiences going to the theater. It's just kind of another thumbnail that kind of gets lost because... I think Roma is so powerful of a movie and such an incredible story that if you haven't seen it, I hope you watch it. It's on Netflix. But to get their complete creative vision is incredible. But I am worried that we have the hits once in a while, movies like Parasite, but still this year's proved that international film isn't really being digested by audiences in person, which is kind of a, a disappointment. Yeah, and it's it's ironic because so many so many contemporary films, especially independent American films, they're highly influenced by international films. And so, if you like films that come out in America that are independently made and more creative, like they're they've been be- being made for decades in places like South Korea and Japan and and all over Europe. So that had that was really the forefront for contemporary cre- creativity in filmmaking in Hollywood was really big in the 60s and 70s with that and then with the 90s and the 2000s they got very uh, corporate and studio driven but then Europe and Asia really took advantage of excelling creatively with films. Now, America is catching up, but nobody's really seeing those films anymore, which really, is kind of sad. They need that word of mouth. Even All Quiet on the Western Front, coming from Germany, incredible movie. Again, it's a Netflix production, a Netflix yeah. film released online. You could get very limited screenings in theaters here and there. I'm sure there's a wider release like in, in Germany yeah, and everything. Yeah, for sure, yeah. But still, even a, an incredible film like that and Decision to Leave, which came out this year, disappointed they didn't have the box office numbers that we were hoping they would have. But also, I mean, it's the, the, also a problem is like, when you look at the movies that are coming out this year, it's like every week there's a huge American release, and it's like not everyone has the time to like go see these films, and there's so many other films coming out. There is a problem of oversaturation, which I think is affecting those films. But we are in the Mecca of filmmaking in America, in Los mm-hmm. Angeles specifically, and films being released and directors and filmmaking, they come so many international filmmakers come to America to make their movies. So you understand that for sure. But we do have the, fi- the film community has grown so much. People are going to see movies probably more than ever, whether it's in theaters or watching movies more than ever with streaming as well. So the film community is growing. It's getting a little more toxic for sure on Twitter. <laughs> absolutely. I run the Twitter account. It's not that I don't fun. But um, the film community is growing, I think, and, and people are paying more attention to international film. I wish they would go to the theaters to see their movies, but I think they're watching those films online, though. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I, I think eventually these, these films find a home. But I wish, it, it would. because when they do well with box office, it becomes news stories. And that builds word of mouth when Deadline runs an article about, oh, this movie had a great opening week and Hollywood Reporter, oh, this international film made $6 million. That gets people to be like, oh, maybe I should watch this. So it's important to get that press with success at the box office. Yeah. Great question, though. Any more questions? We got one over there. In there. We got, hey, Kyle? boys. Hey. Hey, bud. Thank you for the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, is that Rob? <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, hey pal. I know your voice. Get, anyway. getting, getting, getting to know is, uh, your dad back here, by one, the way. One of the stars of Midnight Ruin, everyone. <laughs> hey, what's oh. up? <laughs> your pops is showing us uh, baby pictures as we go, so we got all the dirt. So. <laughs> uh, speaking of beef, um, so after the the fourth act of the Batman, uh, how, how did you stay awake? The fourth act. For me, like as soon as Colin Farrell was. Don, I was like, I didn't really have a reason to stay. So I, I just want to wrap my head around. <laughs> Where do you rank the Batman, Jim, for, for, for Batman, Batman movies? Honestly, I, still, I have it number four, honestly. It's three after or four. No I, my number uh, one, obviously, I think no. the Dark Knight's number one. and I love Batman Begins. I don't care what anyone says. I'll go to my grave saying <laughs> Batman Begins is better than the Batman. I love the Batman. I got a poster it. I see of Jacob it. shaking his head. <laughs> 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 um, you got two Tim Burton movies after that. So you put putting it four. Yeah, I, um, I still loved it I enjoyed the hell out of it I saw it twice in theaters I, I think Max, it has obviously. a lot of potential for the sequel to be incredible like really incredible it was long yeah. it was over it was like two and a half I want to feel like I like a lot of I think the filmmaking yeah. was so great that it kept me into it and I, I like the character for sure of what they did with Bruce Wayne this time but hey hey man if you didn't like the fourth act <laughs> that's you man <laughs> question from Cami online what's the what film visually left you speechless I think that Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity was really insane and I saw that on a huge screen. I think it was IMAX and it was so stunning and I left that theater like, wow, that was insane. Talk Talk about so Maverick. I think Gravity was incredible visuals. Talking Maverick. Talking Maverick, yeah. Talk Maverick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, more questions. What we got? Anyone? All right, yeah, we got plenty. Just curious, um, you, you mentioned Criterion a couple times. If you guys could go to that uh, show and pick one Criterion disc. Oh, The Closet? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which would you pick? And uh, sub question: favorite cinematographer. I would pick *L'enfant*, which is the Dardennes brothers' movie from Belgium, because it was an international film that really got me. It was the catalyst for me getting interested in international film. So *L'enfant*, which is the son, the child, uh, by the Dardennes brothers. I'd probably pick *Before Sunrise*. I adore Great that pick. movie, and it's just magical. Honestly, it's one of the most realistic love stories I've ever seen in my life, and it's, it's like a fairy tale. And then for a cinematographer, I would say, I would go with Gordon Willis, who really redefined the art form in the 70s and 60s with movies like The Godfather. The Prince of Darkness. Yeah, The Prince of Darkness. And All the President's Men is another great one. Uh, uh, He really changed lighting in Hollywood, and everyone followed suit. So I would say Gordon Willis, because he was so influential. And like we said earlier, with these huge bulky cameras that you couldn't do much with, He made some of the most visually striking films to this day. I would say Roger Deakins for me, and I talked about with Prisoners earlier, how he uses the theme of the films to kind of portray the story and push it forward with the characters and what he does artistically behind the camera. And, you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of people when they watch movies, if they're not cinephiles or into film, they think that it's kind of like a, not easy, but like kind of, it's not that big of a deal, cinematography. But it's so important when you have a great artist like Deakins, and even just outside of prisons, what he does with Sicario and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. And all the Coens. Yeah. I, I think he's such a talented guy. I mean, Fargo looks incredible too. Just no country. The insane. eye that he has for, for for storytelling visually to enhance a film. It's just otherworldly so it's comparable to like what John Williams does with music to enhance the story even further. That's a good point, because when you watch Inside Lewin Davis, which he didn't shoot for the Coens, you could tell Deacons didn't shoot this. It still looks great, but it just wasn't quite right. And then when like Denis Villeneuve went to Arrival with a different cinematographer, Bradford Young, Bradford Young, yeah. Young who's tremendous, he did a solo. He mm-hmm. like kind of established that new aesthetic for the Star Wars films going forward in Rogue One and everything. He didn't do Rogue One, but he, like they got that same style shooting in the toe. I, I think you can tell it's not a Deakins movie when you're watching Arrival, but it's kind of close to Villeneuve's, Villeneuve's style. And obviously with Dune, he went with Greg Fraser Villeneuve. But I think Deacons is my favorite for sure. Great pick. Preston, and then we got one fourth row. Okay. Throw (laughs) it. So, when you guys first started your podcast, you didn't have roaring success like you do now. 43 downloads a month, all mom. Yeah. (laughs) Click and play. So, what was your motivation to keep going, to to let the podcast get legs? Did one of you want to quit? The other one jumped in and said... I feel like Anthony, he was like, oh, we're not really getting any traction. I was just worried, like, is is this just going to be nothing, you know? And and I was just like, after several months, there was still no views. And I was like, man, are we just like wasting so much time? But you did just keep saying, let's keep going, let's keep going. And then when we, we got a few viral clips on TikTok, and I was like, whoa, this video that we made got a million views? Like, what the hell? Is that possible? I'm saying, trust me, man. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> trust, trust the process. It's a lot Phil of work. Belichick. Like you see, where we're at now on the stage, and you know we have a following around the world. It's just incredible. But you know, we were putting in hundred-hour weeks for a year and a half because I was working my full-time job still, and I was coming home from work and working on the podcast on weekends. Literally, you had to just get rid of your social life if we, we didn't really have much of one anyways. But, <laughs> but it was a lot of work, but it was like we kind of had this vision, and I kept trying to say, like, Anthony, don't worry. It's going to happen. We're going to hit. There's potential here. We got in just in time before the podcast boom happened, and with lockdown, when it went from, I think it was 500,000 podcasts on the planet to over 3 million in like six months with lockdown, we got in just before then, and i think we're really fortunate obviously to have found people but we just kept pushing and i and i think it was just i found a little success with tiktok with my comedy stuff and i was like screw that this is kind of our blueprint jim boston Jim boston kid but um that was the blueprint of going forward of how to market the show and that's where we got to now so it was tough you know lots of like a year and a half of not making any money investing thousands and thousands of dollars on the show and tons of time and hours and then finally starting to make money and we're both full time on it, which we're so lucky, and it, it was a lot of work though. But there were yes moments, Preston, where we tough, were like, "Gosh, man. what the hell are we doing with our lives?" <laughs> 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 All right, we had another question. Here we go. You got it right here. Uh, uh, I know we talked about like rewatching movies and like like the experience you have with it. Uh, I was just wondering, like, uh, what what is your like comfort movie to rewatch? Because like my mom's is like Polar Express, so my my whole life is surrounded by that kid. You know, Second reference today. Like he, the so one did that, that joke hit you hard. It, it did because I was about to say I was like, "He was the kid. I want to get my first present." It's like, dude, you gotta wait, man. You know, we're all we're all waiting. So. I would say Indiana Jones movies and then Harry Potter movies are always my Harry comfort Potter, films. Man. Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone because yeah. the classic practical filmmaking. Those are The first one for me. Magical. Yeah, if I ever need to cheer up or I'm just feeling down, I'll put on Sorcerer's Stone. Even if, even if not a movie, just like The Office. Like, I am just an office fiend. I can quote that for years. Like The deep track quotes, You do too. weird quotes, and I'm like, I don't even know that. Like, man. how do you not know that quote? <laughs> it's too specific. It's too specific. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, like, the Harry Potter movies, man, we love them. <laughs> All right. Any more questions in the audience? Here we go. What We got back here. Um. So I love True Detective season one. It's my best. I. I. It, no it's one great. can change my mind. <laughs> um. So do you guys have a season of a television show or a whole television show? You guys have like that experience, or no one can change your mind. Breaking Bad, I think, is the best show of all time, and I want to say like season two. I feel like that was my favorite season from there. But season one's incredible, but I think the writing on that show is just so terrific. And I remember I was watching this interview the other day with Vince Gilligan talking about the screenwriting in the writer's room they had and how intense it was and how they really tried to put themselves in the shoes and mindscape of the characters individually. So I think when there's a great show, it's all based on writing. I think Breaking Bad for me is my show in season two, maybe season three, like it's hidden its stride. And when Gus Fring comes in and we have this like great chess match of Walter White versus Gus Fring, they're both super smart. Gus is probably smarter, but you got to figure out... If, if from the screenwriter's room, how do you figure out Gus to lose against Walter White and just kind of figuring out that puzzle and that back-and-forth, like, moving your pawn here, your rook there, just between them that season... I, is that season three, I think, maybe, when Gus comes in? I think season three. Like, that might be my favorite yeah. season. Yeah, season three. All right, season three, Breaking Bad for me. I would say there's a TV show that was on FX called The Americans, if anyone's seen it, that is phenomenal, and it's about uh, Russian spies who have grown into American life, and they've, they're living in disguise as just normal everyday Americans with a family and jobs and everything. Uh, but it's about their day-to-day lives as Russian spies, and it's so good. I, I couldn't recommend it enough. It's fantastic. It's, I think it's four seasons, but all are just stellar shows. Here we go. Another one. Okay, so being a very passionate Star Wars fan, I recently got into this conversation with someone. and Here we go. So, like... I can't stand this Star Wars, but what is your opinion of The Last Jedi? <laughs> I don't mind it. He doesn't mind it. Yeah. I mean, The Last Jedi, for me, it's, it's The Empire Strikes Back. It's the same thing, yeah. It's the same movie for me. Obviously, the first one, Force Awakens, it's a reboot movie. They want to make everyone fall in love with Star Wars again, so it hits all the same exact beats and visuals of uh, New Hope then empire strikes back it just it feels too much like empire strikes back for me for the last jedi so that takes me out of the movie i understand, i respect the filmmaking it's it's tremendous production but it just—it's too much like Empire for me. Even though a New mm-hmm. Hope, I know, is so much like Force Awakens, I accept that because it's the first of the trilogy. It's just too spot on with uh, with M- Empire. Yeah. Uh, I don't Empire. like. I don't, yeah, I don't like. I don't love everything about it, but I think he added that great new element where was it Rain, and Kylo can just kind of communicate visually from it's different face time. Im- a force fa- FaceTime. Face I thought that was a really smart idea to throw into Star Wars, and then JJ took off with it in the third one. Uh, but I don't mind it. I think it's visually one of the best looking si- Star Wars films of all time. Uh, the cinematography, production design. The actors are all phenomenal. I always really liked DZ Ridley as as Ray in those films, but I think it's I think it's good. I think obviously they changed things a little too much with Ryan Johnson's Complete like redaction of what happened. Well, the whole plan of the trilogy was ridiculous. Where they had yeah. one movie and then they didn't really figure out what they were going to do with the trilogy and they just handed it off to Ryan Johnson. Then JJ had to come back for the, the third marathon ones. baton. So they didn't really know, they didn't have a clear structure. I thought Finn was going to have a way bigger role, but I thought he was going to be a Jedi. I thought that I was really disappointed by Finn's character. I, they yeah. did him dirty. I mean, yeah. Finn was awesome. I'm like, guy. he's going he's he's to be a, a Jedi. This is sick. And then he's nope. just like hanging out like, doing nothing by the third film I was disappointed <laughs> with that character what they did with him because he was so awesome in the first one but um, yeah those were our thoughts <laughs> <laughs> any more questions in the audience we got one way back there we'll take we'll take yeah, like yeah, one we'll, more One more. We, and yeah. then we're gonna have to then we're we gonna do up. our after party Yeah. and for those online asking about the after party it's gonna be 30 minutes and it's gonna start in 10 minutes the after party last question hi boys it's Adalia hey, hey! thanks for coming <laughs> Yeah. I love y'all. So now that you're recently off uh, a creative project, your short film, do you see and review movies differently? I, I always know. have since we made our film when we were twenty. Yeah, like we haven't been yeah. on a set for a while, yeah. but a, a little bit. Yeah, now that you understand recently, for recency bias for us of like what it's like to be on a set and how difficult it is, and then I wouldn't say my first time watching a new movie, but my second time watching, i like it. I relate to when we were on set making our film. So yeah, absolutely, I'm still kind of like critiquing it. Always trying to critique films a little more differently now, but definitely the experience of making our movie recently has definitely added to that. Yeah, and I watched The Whale for a second time, and I didn't notice a few of the camera things that Aronofsky and Matthew Libatique, who's also a great cinematographer, were doing the first time because I was just so invested in the emotional stakes of the story, but then the second time, like, having just shot a movie... I was looking at the camera work and they did some really specific intricate things that kind of fly under the radar but subconsciously it makes you feel certain ways the way they position the cameras and move the cameras. Uh, it, I noticed that the second time more so and I think it was definitely because we just came offset. Yeah. All right. Great question. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Adelia. That wraps our up. live yeah. show. Yeah. How about we get that Raiders outro music going? Please Thank you, Please join us, everybody. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.